Welcome to Money Making Conversations. It's the show that shares the secrets of success experienced firsthand by marketing and branding expert Rashawn McDonald. I will know. He's given me advice on many occasions. And in case you didn't notice, I'm not broke. You know he'll be interviewing celebrity CEOs, entrepreneurs, and industry decision makers. It's what he likes to do. It's what he likes to share. Thank you, Stephen A. Smith. This is Rashawn McDonald, and I am the host of MoneyMakingConversation.com. I recognize that we all have different definitions of success. For some, it's a sizable paycheck. Mine is helping people wake up and inspiring them to accomplish their goals and live their very best life. Leave with your gifts and don't let your age, friends, family, or coworkers stop you from planning or living your dreams. I want you to stop tripping over small challenges and prepare to rise above the bigger obstacles that life will present to you. My MoneyMakingConversation.com guest this week are award-winning chef Marcus Samuelson, New York Times bestselling author Rachel Hollis, financial expert Ashley M. Fox, and Marlon Evans will be discussing HBTU scholarship. MoneyMakingConversation.com is waiting on you. I'm Rashawn McDonald. My advice is free and it can change your life. My next guest is Mark Chef. Let me put the word chef in front of him. Marcus Samuelson. He's an award-winning chef, restaurateur, best-selling author, TV personality, philanthropist, and food activist. His culinary career spans over 25 years, has numerous restaurants in the U.S. and internationally, including Red Rooster, Marcus B&B, Norda, Marcus, Mar- Marcus Montreal, and more. His newest book is called The Rise, Black Cooks, and the Soul of American Food. The book is celebrating contemporary black cooking, highlighting the food, culture, and history, and stories, and recipes. The book covers the diverse contributions and, tr- and traditions that influence black cooking and American culture from African African continent to the Caribbean and U.S. We have a lot to talk about, about the process of creating the book, calling it, naming it, the rise of black cooks and the soul of American food. Why did he write the book? How did he decide this was the next book that he wanted to do? So he's here, y'all. Please welcome to Money Making Conversation, Chef Marcus Samuelson. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> My man, I'm going to tell you something. When you write a book like that, first of all, you love food, don't you, Chef? You just love food. Yeah. Let's get that out. Let's get that out front because when I see, when I, I've read past books and I've just followed you on TV, that's like a twinkle in your eye because you, 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 I love the way you dress too. So I'm a, I'm a, I'm a clothes mm-hmm. man. So, so I, you got to look. See, I, I, I've interviewed a lot of chefs over the years. You are probably the best dressed chef I've seen to date. Can you take well, that Well, I can say that I also love food than more than anybody else that you'll ever find. <laughs> you know, that, that is, the kitchen has given me license to travel and live my dreams uh-huh. all over the world. And I'm very, very grateful for that. And of course, as a black man, you got to bring your stuff with it. Of course. I'm telling you Chef. Give yourself your due, man. Because everybody mm. don't have that style. You got the hats, you got the <laughs> vest, you like light colors, green, yellow. You know, you know how to put it together, patterns, squares. See, I, I, I wear a lot of tailored clothes. And so so mm. you you're much more daring, but I just say that in a in a complimentary way because I'm a you know, I wear but a lot I, of suits. My and stuff. neighbor you know, my block is amazing, right? Living in Harlem, you right. know this. Mm-hmm. It's such an amazing village, you know? So my neighbor is Mr. Dapper Dan. Right, 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 right. So whatever I put on, I'm still far behind because the man, dad, <laughs> is just everything. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Because so. I, I, I lived in New York. I lived, last time I was up in New York, I was up, Steve Harvey and I was up there from 2005 to 2007. And I lived at mm-hmm. 40, uh, 39th and 1st. And then previously when I was up there, I was at 86 and 1st. So I was all the ways up into Harlem. And I've been by your mm-hmm. restaurant, by the way. I've not met you, but I've been by your restaurant. Because when it opened, it was always, a, it was always hard yeah. to get in. It was always hard to get in. Yeah. Okay? It was and hard to get in. Always hard, which is a compliment. 
compliment. It's a compliment. Okay. Mm-hmm. And now, so tell us about the restaurant uh, in in Harlem, and uh, and tell us how the let's let's talk about the reality of what we live in today. The COVID nineteen and mm-hmm. how these the country's been shut down, and New York State is still dealing with yeah. a lot of issues. Talk about that in your business. Yeah. No, we had to on March fifteenth. We had a big decision to make. We had to pivot from being a traditional restaurant to be a community kitchen. Mm-hmm. So I partnered with my man Jose Andres from. World Center Kitchen. Mm-hmm. And we started to serve a thousand people, twelve hundred people, fifteen hundred people a day. So for six months straight from March fifteenth until just last week, we served over two hundred thousand meals out You're of that restaurant. Kidding me. We, we we did the same in uh, um, uh, Red Rooster in Overtown in Miami. Mm-hmm. We did the same in Newark where actually Michael B. Jordan helped us to do to do mm-hmm. that as well. Because you know where restaurants are gone in our community, so is our neighborhood, right? So it was very important for me to really go back to what what, is, what what can we imagine chefs as first responders, imagine us out there and and saving and be part of restoring a community. And that's what we did. And it was a powerful, and, and I read about that mm-hmm. and because of the fact mm-hmm. that, you know, black restaurants in general, well, a lot of them weren't ready for the... Um, for the for the um, business model, the new business model to go mm-hmm. uh, Uber Eats and all that service because they were traditional sit in dining facilities, and so mm-hmm. so a lot mm-hmm. of them suffered. A lot of them didn't get the PPP check that enabled them yeah. to keep the doors open. But then out of all that, you've been able to publish a book, and in the book that comes out that we're about to discuss is called The Rise: Black Cooks and the mm-hmm. Soul of American Food. Now I'm from Houston, Texas, so I'm on, I like to consider that one of the heart of the South cities, and I also live in Absolutely. Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta, Georgia. So, so, and I've, I've lived in Chicago. I'm just giving you the range of who you're talking to here, Marcus. Mm-hmm. I've lived in Chicago mm-hmm. four mm-hmm. years. I lived in New York two years. I've been living in Atlanta since 2007. I lived in Los Angeles 15 years, and I was born and raised in Houston, Texas. So. I have, and I have been all over this country and ate fantastic food. I still believe Chicago is the best place to eat across the board. Mm We're talking about variety. Mm -hmm. Can't nobody top Chicago. Mm -hmm. That's my estimate. Now, what do you think is the best place in in this country to eat before we get into your book? Well, well, I I tell you what, there is a couple of places that people might not have as number one, but I tell you, Houston is a great food city because it's very diverse. It's one of the most diverse cities in America, and people don't know about that because it's in Texas, right? My boy Chris Williams. The food, the Mm -hmm. the Vietnamese food, uh, of course, the black food that comes out of of, uh, Houston, but also amazing Indian food and Mexican food, yes, Mexican American food, of course. So Houston is, is a don't sleep on Houston. That's I don't, a great I, food fit as well. But, but I don't want to sound selfish. You know, people say, oh, he's from Houston. He would <laughs> say that, you know. But Houston, I'll tell you something. Dining out in Houston is amazing because of the fact, like you yeah. say, I mean, Tex-Mex, don't barbecue. You, Oh, my goodness. You know, then you got the, mm-hmm. just down the road is New Orleans. So you've got that flavor coming yep. into Houston. And then fish, all the, because we're in the Gulf of Mexico. So you got all sure. those varieties that you were talking about and it is a very diverse city from from the type of from, from Indian food is fantastic there and and so so yes you're you're right so I I, I will I will put I always put a crown on my my, my born city because it mm-hmm. does deliver but you're absolutely right so now we're now we're talking about this this book here that you've written that you created mm-hmm. why this book Marcus why did you write this book well we had to we had to because you know just as American history around black culture is not right. So it's the same with food. And for me, it was very important with the chef, with a big platform. It was important for me to connect the dots that 
black excellence when it comes to food needs to be documented. And there needs to be hats off to the incredible legacy of what black chefs have done before us to set up this moment, right? Mm-hmm. You have, you know, even from Jeff- Thomas Jefferson's time, the, the, you know, the black chefs that he had going up to Miss Leah Chase that, you know, ran her restaurant, you could take still going on in New Orleans for 70 years. You know what I mean? Absolutely. To even to some people that are not as known, like someone like Georgia Gilmore that, you know, was raised money from MLK for the movement, for example. Mm-hmm. Then you have chefs like Sophia Wright that worked for Chef Linda B. Johnson, and she was the one that was convincing him that for the black uh, right to vote, for example, mm-hmm. in 1964. Mm-hmm. So, Chefs, black chefs have contributed in so many different ways. And then, you, of course, you look at Southern food, what we call today's soul food. You can't talk about American food without the black contribution. Think about Creole cooking, right? Think about barbecue. But wherever you find an American history book, you can't find us. And for me, it's, real, it's all a value proposition. We have added worth. We have a value proposition that is not, cannot be monolithic. We've added so much and it was important to document it and present it in a new way. Wow. We're talking to, I'm talking, I'm talking to Chef Marcus Samuelson. Uh, his book, uh, The Rise, Black Cooks, and the Soul of American Food. Now, it's, the book is broken up to five chapters, correct? Uh, you said mm-hmm. the next, yep. the remix, the migration, mm-hmm. the legacy, and the origin. And like I said, mm-hmm. it little subtitles tied to each, or like the next, where black food is headed. And then on the remix, black cooking integrates many cultures, which is so true. Mm-hmm. The migration, the influence of the American South, where I'm from. Then the legacy. Mm-hmm. old and new journeys from Africa to America. Let's talk right there because the diaspora, I'm hoping I said that correctly, has been a, a, mm-hmm. a, a type of meal that is suddenly appearing across this country. I, I will tell you, I was first exposed to it when I used to take my family down to, uh, to Disney World in Orlando. Mm-hmm. And they uh, mm-hmm. they had a menu that's completely an African menu. In fact, they have a buffet. Yeah. And that's what I was exposed to, that amazing, spicy, diverse menu of African food. And also have another restaurant there, which is a wonderful restaurant, which is a menu-driven restaurant as well. So that's what I got mm-hmm. exposed to that food. Why has there been such an explosion of, a, of the um, African menu in America? Well, I think because I think a couple of things. Internet. And opportunity to link and bridge. Like you can now, you know, a lot of my chef friends, they're going to Lagos to learn about food now the way they used to go to France or, 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 or Italy, right? That wasn't possible 15, 20 years ago. And I think about there's always been a back and forth between the continent of Africa and black excellence. You think about music, right? Think about how Fela and all the African-American musicians used to go to Africa, Stevie. Everybody went to Africa to learn. And now you have you know, Afrobeats and you have hip hop that takes influence from that. So in music, the link blues, everyone knows where the blues truly come from, for example. But guess what? It wasn't just music that traveled like that. It was also food. So okra, rice, how did it get here? Of course, it's the history with enslaved and slavery, right? Very difficult history to talk about, but it also brought us the food that we have. So just as much as the music came from Africa, and came to America as part of our black narrative. There's also linkage with the food, you know, peanuts, okra, it's staples of American cooking comes from Africa. And for us, it's not that today, it's an opportunity to share and, and talk about it and take, take something that was very dark and difficult to something positive. Well, it, is, it really is. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting taste, a lot of colors. 
You know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, one of my favorite, I think, Purple Yams. I've, 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 I've eaten. Mm-hmm. There you uh, go. Ooh, come on now, brother. I, I, I tell you, I'm a foodie now. I'm a foodie now. I love yeah. eating great yeah. food. Now, let's, you say Legos, and mm-hmm. I, I, I ran across that plantain menu mm-hmm. that's in your book. I believe it's in that yeah. next, next chapter. Yeah. Now, see, yeah. I'm a guy, the reason I got excited about that, because I'm a guy, you know, I go into the store and I buy it in the store, just reheat it. That's what I do. You know, mm-hmm. Goya brand mm-hmm. was one of the brands, popular brands that I always yeah. had in my house. Okay. Now I see a nice little simple recipe in your book. Now, yeah. which, which, you know, like I said, you know, when you can, when you get these recipe books, sometimes they can be so daunting sometimes, chef, that it's like, oh man, I can't cook nothing in this book, but your book is different. Yeah. And also you, you, you the way you stylized your book, because you, you, you're honoring chefs and restaurants across the country. And that was a unique take that I've never seen any, any, any restaurant book because your boy, my boy, I want to say, I won't call him my boy. Cause I went up there, I interviewed him on the show and I told him my wife and I was going to fly to Seattle and spend our weekend <laughs> anniversary. And we did. And he was, yeah. yeah. And he was shocked. I, I said, Man, I said, look, brother, look, I say, I, I go for good food. I looked online. I said, man, you got some food that I want to yeah. eat. And I went up to June Baby in Seattle. And you're very familiar with that. And Eduardo Jordan, straight yeah. out of Florida. Florida boy. Okay. We love, we love Eduardo. Uh, t- uh, that's talk- what we wanted to highlight, right? Mm-hmm. I wanted, I want to, black, there's so many black chefs in this country. Right. That are amazing. And Eduardo Jordan is one of them. And so is someone like Carla Hall, and so is someone like Nisha Arrington. And what you're ending up doing when you read the book, you can look at it as two ways. Hey, when we start the world up, no, open up again, and we're going to start traveling, so you can look forward to go to Seattle and go to Eduardo's Westmont. Mm-hmm. You can look at this book as, hey, I live in Atlanta. Okay, who in Atlanta should I link up with? Maybe your company wants to do a, a, a corporate buyout. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Who is, because the book, after COVID, Black businesses, black food entrepreneurs going to need our business more than ever. Right. So this book, not only did I do a deeper dive on 40 chefs and storytellers across the country, I also added another 200 black chefs and food writers in the back mm-hmm. with their Instagram handle. So no one can say to me, well, how do I find them? It's hard to find them. It's not hard to find them. In the rise, you can, you can find every single one. And and wherever your community is, I can guarantee you, someone is in wherever you live in this country. There is an amazing local black chef. Look her up. Look him up. He will need you more than ever. All right. You're listening to Money Making Conversations with Rashawn McDonald. We'll be right back. Cars today are like a computer on wheels, but you can't fix any of these new features yourself. So when something breaks, it could cost you a fortune. And now is not the time for expensive repairs. That's why you need CarShield. CarShield has affordable protection plans that can save you thousands for a covered repair, including computers, GPS, electronics, and more. CarShield understands payment flexibility is a must. Plans are customizable and as low as $99 a month. No long-term contracts or commitment. Plus, you get to pick your favorite mechanic or dealership to do the work and CarShield takes care of the rest. They also offer complimentary 24-7 roadside assistance and a rental car while yours is being fixed. CarShield is America's number one auto protection company. For as low as $99 a month, you can protect yourself from surprises and save thousands. Call 1-800-CAR-6000 and mention code MONEY, M-O-N-E-Y or visit CarShield.com and use code MONEY, M-O-N-E-Y to save 10%. That's CarShield.com, code money. A deductible may apply. Welcome back to Money Making Conversations. I'm your host, Rashawn McDonald. You know, here's the beauty of it. Like Beyonce, 
one of the big things she did over COVID was she called the parade. And the parade was just basically yeah. a black shopping zone. Okay. And it just blew up young entrepreneurs who basically Beyonce just touched you and anointed your business as credible. And you should at least, like you said, support it during these pandemic times. Now, I'm hearing what you're doing because I, I, I follow you a little bit there, you know, because you're a great chef. And when I saw what you're doing, what do you do? Because this sounds something like I would if you need my support on social media to get the word out because I'm a natural foodie. And so but I've never mm -hmm. heard of anybody doing what you're doing with a national platform, kind of like a, 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 a phone book. Of, 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 yeah. of restaurants yeah. that you can go and go and, and dine fantastic and, and because I travel a lot I'm very familiar with what mm -hmm. you're talking about and so I I, I, I have a call Rushan Eats okay and so mm -hmm. on my social media I got like, like almost a million Facebook followers I love I start supporting these on my 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 post and say go here and get photo and now what Beautiful. I do is I will, what I do is I do it every every Wednesday I do a Rushan eats and I just go to a restaurant or I hear about a restaurant that's been recommended to me I get about ten photos from that restaurant and I just tell people they should try it and so if you if you like me too I I support the cause and make all my selections black owned restaurants from your book I love that but that's that's what we need right like we're in a moment think about this most books and content that is out there. We're not in it because it was not for us, right? right? So mm -hmm. the way we can actually navigate through this very challenging period, because you know COVID's gonna stay in our communities longer than in others. Absolutely. You know, it impacted us more than any other community because of lack uh, uh, of healthcare and so on. So the only way we're gonna be able to have black entrepreneurship in the food space left it's by actually supporting each other. So what you're doing here with your platform, you're highlighting, you're broadcasting black excellence when it comes to food. And that was for really what inspired me. It's like, I was like, no, Marcus, you can't, Red Rooster is up. It's doing okay. It's mm -hmm. doing well. Mm -hmm. You know, we're opening in Miami in a couple of weeks, mm -hmm. right? So we're good. But it's not about me. This is really about the legacy that we leave behind. And there has to be a worth and a value system to work in food. And I'll give, I'll give you an example, right? Mm -hmm. When you think about Brother Nearest Green. Green Nearest Green is the one that came up with the recipe for Jack Daniels. Right. He never got one dollar for uh, coming up with the recipe for Jack Daniels. Now, probably the most famous liquor brand in the world, top five famous liquor brand in the world. Right. Now, imagine if he would have gotten ten cents on the dollar to you know his family, his his extended family. Maybe there would have been a Nearest Green Museum, etc. Right. When we get written out out of the authorship of what we create, there's no link backs to us. And it does many things. A, it hits economically. B, it also tells other black people that it's not, there's no value to be in food, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we brought barbecue to this country. Yes. We came up with a bourbon recipe for this country, in this country. But yet, we completely written out out of the ownership and the authorship of that. And so we have to stop that. We have to support each other and find each other because our own economy, we can sustain black businesses and restaurants by supporting each other. I know that. Absolutely. And I 100% and I agree. And that's that's why I, I when I, I on my show, Money Making Conversations, a show about entrepreneurship and I get to interview CEOs and uh, celebrities, entertainers and influencers. And I have chefs uh, on my show more than anything because I know that the core of what we do in a black community mm. is, is food, good food. 
and uh, being able to support and make you guys really out of stars. You're, you know, you're the stars of the, of the plate. You're the stars of the kitchen. And it doesn't get recognized enough because people kind of just see you cooking. And you, like you said earlier, there's so much more influence that comes out of the kitchen based on who you talk to, who you serve and who you communicate with that sometimes it changes the outlook of the world. Yeah, no, it, it is. And it's also important because think about food. Our food rituals are old, right? Like mm. it's important to keep those in our, our community, right? The other part is also health. We can do better than that. We need to know, teach our community to eat healthier, but also environmental. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? If mm-hmm. we're going to leave, leave off the world in a better place than we got it, cooking has a lot to do with that. How do we consume food? Where do we buy it? How can we do it in a greener context? And how can we make sure, for example, diabetes in our community is going to go down? Yes. Well, how we cook, how we eat is the answer to that. Absolutely. Uh, I'm talking to Chef Marcus Samuelson. His fantastic book, The Rise, Black Cooks and the Soul of American Food is who I'm talking to right now. A uh, couple of things from the book, like I said, that left me mouthwatering the coconut fried chicken. Because I'm going to tell you something, brother. Coconut is my number one thing I love to cook with. I've never, ever made coconut fried chicken. And then, mm-hmm. you, then, you, then you hit me with this one right here, Chef. The oxtail pepper pot with dumplings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is mm-hmm. that your take on chicken and dumplings with a spin with oxtails? Come on, brother. with a spin, exactly. Oh, you know, we all love an oxtail, right? Come, come we on. all love that. Boy, I, I, boy, if you'd have been around by the hugs, you chef, when I saw that yeah. oxtail pepper pot with dumplings. Yeah. Mm. There you go. That's that's good, man. That's good. And then and then and then say I'm I'm from Houston, Texas, and. Wild berries. When I was a kid, mm-hmm. my parents used to take me out and we just go out and pick wild berries, man. And they put some sugar on them. And boy, that was the best dessert we yes. ever had. Yeah. Just put some sugar on some, on some wild berries. And brother, I tell you, that's a dessert right there. Now, mm-hmm. in this book it here, is. you have this sweet wild berry pie. Tell us about that, sir. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. Well, you know, berries, you know, I remember going with my grandmother picking berries, but, you know, you never know what you would get, you know, and that's my whole point. Foraging was, you know, was not something to put on Facebook. It was actually something, you know, if you didn't pick the berries, I might get something on my neck for my grandmother. Right, (laughs) right. You know, you you pick those berries up, you bring them back home, and then you make a jam. And then, you know, if you were lucky, you had a lot left over, then you can... You know, do a pie crust and mm. bake it. And that was the best pie ever, right? Because as a child, you were part of that. Whether yes. that was blueberries, or whether that was a black currant, whatever it was, right? And us going out foraging, we didn't know what we were going out for. Mm. We were looking. We found blueberries. We found lingonberries. Come on and now. It also depends and, on what And then they tell you, know? watch out for them snakes now. Watch out for them snakes. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> Am yes. I telling the truth, Marcus? Am I telling the truth? <laughs> of course. And I was always scared about it. But I had my grandmother. My, my grandmother. She knew how to cut the head off. Of yes. Chicken and a snake. Yes. Yeah. 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 Oh, my God. It's great talking to you. I, I hope we maintain yeah. this relationship, man, because uh, you're, 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 you're a strong spirit and, um, and uh, these recipes. Like, I, I'm going to tell you, uh, 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 um, I would call it a meal or something, uh, but this is something I've become, I've fallen in love with and it's in your book. And I never, for, and for years I would just pass it up. Couscous. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love it. And you have a recipe called couscous and roasted fig. And I love it. I grew up, I had a fig tree in my backyard. 
A fig Beautiful. tree in the backyard, and we just go in. If anybody has a fig tree, you have figs forever. If you have a fig tree, mm-hmm. it's like a plum tree. It just they just there forever. And so, but I've never seen this mix before. Talk about this couscous and roasted fig. Well, you know, it, we got to think about eating healthier. And couscous is so light and bright. It you is. know what I mean? And then just you can add any fruit. Like if you're in the South, you can also add peaches to that. You need, you can also add nuts to that. So it's very easy, right? Sometimes we have so much great food here. And couscous is so easy to cook, right? You can soak it or just cook it for five minutes and steam it. And then just fold in your peach or your, or your figs, for example. Some nuts, some some beautiful fresh herb. And you have a snack, you have a lunch. If you roast some chicken with that, now you have dinner. You know, so we got to, you know, we always have to sort of mix up our sides. And that's really the key, being to, by being introduced to different foods. But, you know, that's the key for us to change our diet so we're not always eating the same. And that's really important. And if, when I go through this book, like I said, you've heard me mention the, the plantains, the coconut fried chicken, mm-hmm. the oxtail pepper pot with dumplings, uh, many more recipes. I'm just I just picked out a few of my favorites. OK, uh, the couscous and roasted fig. You heard me talk about here. Here's something I was uh, I wanted to talk about the, the, my, my, at the Dookie Chase. That's in New Orleans. I've been there several times. Uh, like I said, I live from Houston, Texas. So my best friend, who's my best man at my wedding, he's from New Orleans. So I was always mm-hmm. in New Orleans. So I'm very familiar with Dookie Chase. Now, Lil Chase has a gumbo recipe in there. Yeah. Now, now let, 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 I, I want to get this straight here because, see, I, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't see anything. People always hear to say the word roux. You got to have a roux for a gumbo. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't know what that is. I'm just going to let you know. I just I cook it just like Lil Chase does. You know, I just put mm-hmm. I, I put it all in the pot. It all goes well. Yeah. And and because my wife the other day, you know, she was looking at the recipe. She was over there, you know, trying to, I got to get my roux right. I said, what are you talking about? Yes, yes, yes. Well, this is the thing that both of you guys are right, right? The roux is really the flour yes. and the butter mix and the flour and yes. the oil mix that you cook out. And you get that a little brown, right? Right. But what's happened, how a recipe has evolved is back in the day, you couldn't afford a lot of vegetables and a lot of seafood. So the way something was thickened was with a thick roux, which everybody could afford, oil and flour. But as today, as cooking is now, as we can afford more things, we've actually cut down on the roux and adding more okra, more, more vegetables, and more seafood into it because the roux itself doesn't really have a great taste. So that's why in modern recipes, the roux is kind of cut out because it's, all go. it is is flour. But, but, you know, your wife is right. Traditionally, go way back. A roux was definitely there for that. I'm gonna tell you Marcus. I, 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 I mean, you're right. It's always right. Hey, right, she's, hey, right, hey, she's, she's, well. she's right. But look at her. I, yeah. I, I can't, I can't waste my time with that root. I'm telling you, Marks. <laughs> I'm just like my girl Chase. I just, I just put it together mm-hmm. just like that. She uses fish stock. I use chicken stock. Yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm gonna try the fish and chicken stock this time. That sounds like yeah. a good because yeah. that fish probably bring me a little natural salt into that, which is really mm-hmm. good for my natural form go. of cooking. But, it, but, but, but I know we're running out of time here. But I want to bring up something that growing up, man, I grew up in uh in the hood. Uh, I had six mm-hmm. brothers, two sisters. Both my parents stayed there. We lived in a two bedroom shotgun house. Okay. And mm-hmm. and so, you know, my dad, my father was a truck driver and my mom used to make hot water cornbread. OK. And to this uh-huh. day, I cannot get that. And then I ran across uh-huh. this recipe, hoe cakes in your book. Yes. Yes. 
You know, and it, that's the whole point about bringing out things, quick things. I mean, think about it. In, think about this, how incredible our ancestors were, right? They had very little. But we still, 200, 300 years later, still trading on these incredible recipes that our ancestors had. So the ingenious in black cooking. You can't take it for granted. You, you got to appreciate it. And the only way to do that is to document it, share it, and tell stories, right? So this, this is, you, you are really deep in the book when you find recipes like that. And it's like, we did that. We did that. You know what I mean? And that's what really what this book is about. It's about celebrating black chefs, past, present, and future. And, and that's what I wanted to tell you a little bit about me in here. Because I want to let you know how passionate and how detailed this book is because it hit home so many ways with me because my wife is from Belize. Okay. So that get that mm -hmm. culture from there, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and so I've, I've been fortunate to travel the world, especially in the Caribbean. So I'm very familiar with the food down there, you know, uh, uh, jerk pork is still one of the coolest meat for, meat for me. Yeah. And so, um, and when I come across a book, you know, Papa is shrimp and grits, the fried chicken and waffles, mm -hmm. peri peri sauce. I'm going like, Man, this is a fantastic book. But on top of that, you know, the book I'm talking about is The Rise, Black Cooks and the Soul of American Food. It's broken up into five chapters. Next, Remix is one chapter. Migration is one chapter. Legacy and Origin. But the fact that you are willing to promote the brand of black restaurants throughout this country. I'm going to champion your cause. Marcus, I'm going I'm to I'm be right there with you, man. And I'm going to start posting it every week in my social media, you know, and just in this writing this book, I just want to tell a little bit of my life to show you how impactful this book affects me. I'm from the inner city. I've been fortunate to travel all over this world and I eat amazing food. A lot of the restaurant uh, chef that you mentioned, a lot of the restaurants I've been in. And the fact that you are taking the time to show support and strong support for these black restaurants across the country. I'm going to show my I'm going to piggyback on you. Every Wednesday, I'm gonna start. You. I'm gonna start tagging and and contacting them, getting ten photos, and and say this is Rushan Eats. This restaurant I'm recommending is black owned, supported, and uh, and we go from there, man. Because your book's I amazing. I really appreciate that. You're amazing, dude. I, really I, I, I know it's the first time we've ever talked, man, and uh, I appreciate you, and I, I value what I you're trying to bring to the game of uh, but yeah. also. Let, let, let's trade numbers, man, because you need to do a documentary, yes. bro. That's what I do. Yes, yes, yes. That's what so I do. This, I don't know you know who I am, but you? that's what I do, bro. Yeah, yeah, I know. Okay. But this is you, 305? Uh, no, I, I would, uh, uh, I'm a call, I got that 917 number. I'm going to call you back on that. I'm going to text you call on that. Call me back, and then we'll go from there. Okay, thank my you, brother. Sir. I appreciate you. Hey, man, uh, Thanks, I want to bye. thank you for coming on Money Making Conversation. I'm going to put this book in my newsletter, promote it on my social media. But more importantly, don't you change, chef, okay? You keep winning. Thank you so much. I appreciate that too. Thank bye you, bye. sir. Bye. <laughs> we'll be right back with more from Rashawn McDonald and Money Making Conversations. Don't touch that dial. Organ donations save lives, and some organs can even be donated by a living donor. August is National Minority Donor Awareness Month, so let's check in with Dr. Danae Simpson, Assistant Professor of Surgery at Northwestern Medicine. Tell us about the African American Transplant Access Program. So this is my baby. This is a program that I have dreamt about creating since I became interested in transplant as a trainee. And it's a program designed to address the significant disparities that our African-American patients face. The program is designed to educate patients about transplant, let them know what transplant can provide to them, and to help them access the resources that they find so scarce and so challenging 
to access in order to get them on the transplant path and back to, you know, some type of meaningful life. For more information, visit nm.org slash radio. Hi, I'm Rashawn McDonald, host of MoneyMakingConversations.com. The Cafe Mocha Swag Award is a celebration of black men who are making a difference in our community by empowering others to reach their life goals. From civic leaders, businessmen, activists, celebrities, and everyday dads. The Cafe Mocha Swag Award winner this week is Don Lemon. Don, the host of CNN Tonight, has launched a new and powerful podcast entitled Silence is Not an option. The podcast embarks on tough, honest, and provocative conversations with activists, artists, and thinkers, offering perspective about our nation's deep racial divide while exploring what Americans can do to help find a path forward. In this moment, when you have all these issues happening, when you have people wanting equality, justice, racial justice, criminal justice, so on and so forth, is that you couldn't sit around and no one should sit around and be silent about it. It's time for all of us to let our guards down a little bit and to talk about these things. And in, in order to change, you got to listen and you have to speak. You got to ask questions. Silence is not an option. The Cafe Mocha Swag Award represents men who have strength, whose wisdom is assertive, and who is genuine in their spirit. Welcome back to Money Making Conversations. I'm your host, Rashawn McDonald. My next guest, Rachel Hollis, laid the foundation for our lifestyle brand and media company by being a two-time, two-time number one New York Times bestselling author. Hollis connects with a highly engaged and growing global audience who treasures her transparency and optimism. She's one of the most sought after motivational speakers, plays host to one of today's top business podcasts, and is a proud working mama of four who uses the platform to empower and embolden women around the world. Rachel calls Austin, Texas her home. I'm born and raised in Houston, Texas, so you know I love her. More specifically, the hill country just outside of Austin, which is a beautiful wooded area. She's on the show to discuss her new book. Didn't see that coming. Please welcome to Money Making Conversation. I'm going to call her my friend because she's a Texan girl, uh, Rachel Hollis. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, how you doing? Well, based in right now, I got a home in Houston, but I, my headquarters is in Atlanta, Georgia. So so I, I, I was born in Houston, Texas, went to high school, went to college there, got married in Houston, Texas. So Texas is my, my birth state and my lifestyle state. So how does Love it feel it. to live in Austin, my friend? And how long have you been in Austin? It feels fantastic. I've been here a little over three years Mm -hmm. and moving out of Los Angeles into Austin uh, is one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. Well, I'm going to just tell you this. I lived in Los Angeles 15 years. Okay. So I know the four or five at 10 p.m. on a Sunday (laughs) night can be packed like it's 5 p.m. Right. Uh, Right. I I, I lived in uh, first I lived in Hollywood right off of 101 and um, Hollywood right there. And then I lived off and then I moved to La Brea right there and right across from uh, La Brea Tar Pits. I lived in that uh, Mm -hmm. townhomes over there. And then I closed it out living in the Palazzo right across from uh, by the market, uh, farmer's market, right across from Nordstrom. Yep. I used to walk out of Nordstrom, right that street light. I walked to that street light and I go into Nordstrom. That's how convenient my life was. <laughs> nice. Or either nice. convenient, Rachel, or very successful. Either way, I was living large. You're always living large. Right. Living large. But that's what LA does for you. It allows you that environment to live large, and then you move to Austin, and it just, it just like immediately slows down. So why mm-hmm. was that important to have a move to Austin for you, and then most importantly, your family? 
Well, I think uh, for, for several reasons. The first, the impetus for the move was I am a business owner and California is not very kind <laughs> to business owners, but Texas is. Uh, no state so taxes, by I, the way, you're about no state right, taxes. That is exactly right. <laughs> uh, so I knew, I knew that I wanted to grow my company. I wanted to grow my team. And I thought I had a better chance of doing that in a state that was a little bit more forgiving, was a much lower cost of living, just really practical reasons for why. And Austin was one of my favorite cities in the world, still is. And so it made a ton of sense. But I don't think I was even conscious of how much I was going to love getting back to the country and having space. And I mean, I'm, I'm doing this interview with you. I'm looking, I'm on a hilltop. I'm literally looking out over just just beautiful land. And it feels like such a blessing every single day of my life. I look out at this view and I never take it for granted. I'm so grateful to be here. You know, it's really important that people understand what she's saying. Like I, I grew up in a little backstory on me, Rachel. I grew up in the, in the hood, uh, uh, just six sisters, two brothers, both my parents and a two bedroom shotgun house. So we, space was always an issue. I was always on top of people. Mm-hmm. And so, and so, you know, people understand that Create for a creative person like me, I have to have, I have to, I have to be able to walk out and not bump into people. And so yeah. my home in Houston is in a gated community is really nice. But then my property in uh, Atlanta is, I have a little lake. And so and when, I, when I bought this property, I, well, my wife, she found it and I walked into the house. I said, I wanted to buy it. My wife said, you don't negotiate like that. You just don't walk in the house and say, you want to buy it. <laughs> because it, I, I could look out the back and I saw water and water is such a calming mm-hmm theme to me. Mm-hmm. And so when I when I when I and I bring that up because of the fact that, you know, these are triggers for you. And you talk about that mm-hmm. how because you're really big into therapy. And these triggers mm-hmm. are important that people understand how you can find that place where you can calm your spirit, calm your which in turn will, will calm your body. And because a lot of people don't know the mental frame that you can can affect you, your body in a lot of difficult in a lot of negative ways physically, correct? Right. And and the thing that I want to say for your listeners, too, is neither you or I grew up inside of privilege in having money. So, like, I grew up super poor, um, a lot of really difficult stuff in my childhood. And so I just want to say for people who are listening who maybe think, like, oh, it's so easy for you guys to say find space or have a view or well, all of those things. I remember being a little girl and going into my bed and closing my eyes and using my imagination to imagine myself in a different world than the one that I lived inside of. I honestly didn't have the language to call that manifesting or dreaming or naming big goals at the time, but that truly was where I learned how to do it. So you can envision the life that you want. You can envision the space that you are hoping for years before you ever make that thing manifest. So don't think that you need the money or the house or the property in order to find that peace for yourself. That really is something that you can do through mindset and meditation. You know, this is, I'm talking to Rachel Hollis. Her book, Didn't See That Coming. I'm going to tell you why I really, you know, this is the first time I've spoken to her, but you know, you, you meet somebody, you read about them and you do a little research. You go, I love this person. Okay. First of all, I don't know if you've heard this term, but you know, I've I, I watched your Instagram account. I like the way you stand because your, your toes point inward. 
Okay. When you stay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yes. That's called pigeon toad. I don't know if pigeon a lot of people toad. Pigeon yes, toad. A lot of people don't know. Toad my whole life. And I'm pigeon toad. Okay. So we pigeon toad okay, couple. Good. We're a pigeon toad couple. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> so, so I, that's why I, I, I said, so, so I said, oh, she's pigeon toad. I love her. I love her. And then I'm reading the book and she says, uh, she says this funny line in it. She talks about, you know, swallowing a watermelon seed and you think a watermelon will grow in your stomach. Raise yes. your hand. That was Rashawn McDonald. Rashawn. Right. <laughs> I thought Santa Claus was real. I'm just going to let you know. That's right. how. That's how simple my of mind course. was. That's how simple my of mind course. was. And so and so then another thing I laughed out loud and I I was so fun just listening to reading your book was the was the because was the the birthmark the little mole. Oh my god. Yes. I wanted the birthmark so bad. Rachel. That's hilarious. I, you know, I just, I just wanted a little mole somewhere so I could just. That's my little sexy spot right there. That's my, that's my. <laughs> and you, and you got it right there. You know, I and, did, and, and you man. talk, and you talk about it. So, so you, we hit it off. Where well, we hit it off in four ways: Austin, Texas. There girl, you go. Okay. Great. Then you were pigeon toed, and a lot of people when you tell yes. them pigeon toe, unless you pigeon toe, you don't know what you're talking about. Okay. You don't know what that means. Uh, yes. You don't know. And then she has a beautiful birthmark, and then she actually believed that she swallowed a watermelon seed. A watermelon will grow in her stomach. Rashawn McDonald. Yes. <laughs> well, and in the book, the, the reason that I'm talking about the watermelon seed is that I want to ask you as a reader, what are things that you used to believe as capital T truths that you now know were are not true? Because if you held on to the belief about Santa Claus or the Easter bunny or, you know, the, you know, if I, if I swallow an apple seed, like it's poison and it's going to kill me, mm -hmm. then you can ask yourself, what as an adult right now, what limiting belief, what thing are you holding on to right now that could also not be true? And that is especially powerful when the thing that you believe is about your own self and your own abilities. Right. Like I, I feel like when people grew grow up without not a lot of things that they they sort of go one of two ways. They either have that become their reality, like the world is out to get me. I'll never get ahead. I'll never have anything. My family doesn't have the resources. They, they have all of these things that they keep telling themselves or. You maybe did what you and I do, which is like, okay, I didn't, I didn't come from anything, but by God, I have the ability to wake up today and try my best and I can learn and, and use resources that are out there that are free and I can grow and become something more. So what are the things that you used to believe that are actually, you know, for a fact are not true? Well, dang, what are you holding on to right now in your life that maybe you need to let go of as well? And that's, that's so true because let, let's go back to my belief there was a Santa Claus. Okay. And I, I, yeah. I, was, I was born and raised in the hood. So I, I was holding on to anything that I felt made me feel good. That made me feel that could yeah. take me away from the world that I knew wasn't the world I wanted to be in because I lived in one community until I was 10 years old. And then we moved up to a little bit better black neighborhood. But still, when I walked outside, it looked like the same neighborhood, black people all around mm -hmm. me. You know, I got on the bus and it was black people getting on the bus. So it wasn't like my environment changed. It was just that my lifestyle got upgraded a little bit. And so I believe and I'm telling you honestly, Rachel, I believe in Santa Claus till I was 15 years old. I really did. I believe mm. so. And so I did not, the the bubble was burst when my dad woke me up. Okay. Woke me up. He said, come on, boy, we got to put these bikes together. I go, bikes together? What you talking about? You gotta mm. put, and he took me outside and uh, and he pulled these bikes. I kept going there. I, kept, I, I, I was so 
I was so, I don't know if you say naive, but I was just so wanted to believe that there yep. was something else out there for me other than what I had known and lived that he told me, there's no, there's no, that doesn't exist, son. Don't worry about that. Let's put these bikes together. We got to put all this fruit underneath these Christmas trees, these train tracks. We got to put all this stuff underneath so everybody can be happy in the morning. That was my, that was my entry into adulthood right there. I went from, mm. I went from like, Totally believing in Santa Claus to like, huh? I'm an adult now? Yeah. And so that was like the right. cold slap in the face for me because, you know, sometimes parents don't understand that that transition of information can really, can really do something to a child. And it didn't it really, I'm not saying it ruined my life, but it was a moment where where I was really safe. I was in a very safe space. And that's what you're mm -hmm. talking about. When you hold on to information, it can keep you in a very space, safe space, but it also can hinder your growth. Absolutely. And what's so crazy is that people will hold on to the certainty because they do feel comfort in it, even to their own detriment. Right. So, right. Uh, I mean, I think your the your story about finding that out, it like oh, makes my heart hurt. And I, I don't know why this just popped into my head, but the fact that it's something that you still think about and like you can hear when you tell that story that it is a painful memory for you, even if it was sort of a rite of passage. And of course, your dad couldn't have thought, you know, at 15 years old that you still maybe were holding on to that truth. I wonder what it looks like in your life today. Like, have you ever thought about I, I'm just thinking as we go into the holidays and Christmas is coming around, like have you ever thought about doing something like putting effort into you know, do you vol volunteer or, or give presents or something to um, uh, kids in foster care? Or do you do something where you are keeping the spirit of Santa Claus alive well, you know, for the, other little kids? We'll be right back with more from Rashawn McDonald and Money Making Conversations. Don't touch that dial. Cars today are like a computer on wheels, but you can't fix any of these new features yourself. So when something breaks, it could cost you a fortune. And now is not the time for expensive repairs. That's why you need CarShield. CarShield has affordable protection plans that can save you thousands for a cover repair, including computers, GPS, electronics, and more. CarShield understands payment flexibility is a must. Plans are customizable and as low as $99 a month. No long-term contracts or commitment. Plus, you get to pick your favorite mechanic or dealership to do the work and car shield takes care of the rest they also offer complimentary 24 7 roadside assistance and a rental car while yours is being fixed car shield is america's number one auto protection company for as low as 99 dollars a month you can protect yourself from surprises and save thousands call 1-800-CAR-6000 and mention code money m-o-n-e-y or visit carshield.com and use code money m-o-n-e-y to save 10 percent. that's carshield.com code money a deductible may apply Welcome back to Money Making Conversations. I'm your host, Rashawn McDonald. Well, you know, the thing about my personality is that I always go back. Uh, since I was 18, I can always realize I, I, my mission is always to make other people's lives better. I'm, all, mm -hmm. I'm always in a position to make young people see there's opportunity. So I make donations. I'm, I'm tied to like specific uh, programs, whether it's entertainment program for kids who want to pursue entertainment careers. I have a scholarship foundation at my alma mater, University of Houston, for minority students who want math and science opportunities and optometry opportunities and education. So, so I've always had that built-in mechanism to to make people feel good and see opportunity. And then I'm a big Christmas decorator. 
Okay, I love the mm. that, that that Christmas tree is going up at my house. You know, I, I will spend money right. to make sure people understand that I value and feel good about the Christmas moment, the spirit of uplift, the spirit of mm-hmm. feel good. That that dominates my life. And so when I'm reading your book, mm-hmm. you know, don't see don't didn't see that coming. You know, your whole story when you're telling from that tragic moment, you know, mine is nowhere near the tragic moment you walking in on your brother Ryan and his suicide. It, but it was a jolting moment for me because I was in denial about there was no Santa Claus, according to my parents. You know? Right. When people told me, right. I, said, I wrote letters. When you go look at the news, they always tell you he's flying over the North Pole. They're telling the, yeah. the news. Is, the news is telling. I, I just up and tell my friend. They would look at me like, boy, you are so stupid. <laughs> really? Look at the news. I validate. And so when you look at a situation right. like, like in regards to you, you see signs, but you ignore them. And I think that that's what happened in your brother's situation. There were signs and they were ignored. Mm-hmm. And then the reality is never a good thing because the reality led to his suicide. So mm-hmm. but that was a point that, that that jolted you. And there was a rite of passage that you weren't prepared to deal with. Yeah, like you had to yes. deal with it because guess what? It was thrust upon you. Yes, exactly. Well, I think, you know, that is, I I think that most people go through something in their lives that divides their life in half. It's that pivotal moment, whether that happens at age six or 14 or 39, where you divide your life into before and after this thing. And for me, the death of my older brother is my before and after Mm -hmm. is it, you know, I, I describe it as our, our family was, uh, was so, was so not great, but we were still clinging to something. Right. And then Ryan's death was, it literally was the straw that broke the camel's back. Like it just decimated whatever was left. And as much as I have always been a really mature even as a little girl, I was, I was very mature. I grew up, like you said, you know, you grew up in that moment. I grew up that day. Um, I, you know, my parents really, obviously, you know, they had just lost their son, but they really struggled with keeping it together. And I remember being way too young and, you know, doing things that I shouldn't have been doing, calling and telling family members that he was gone or helping to, you know, write the obituary, just things that like I was 14. And in retrospect, now that I have my own kids, I can look at that and see how not okay it was. But at the same time, I feel like that's what life is. Right. Life are these, is this a series of moments where you, you're, you're in it. And you're sort of asked to step up and you're asked to figure it out. And um, that's not the only time that's happened to me in my life. And, and, and I think, honestly, it may not be the only time for the rest of my life that I go through something that difficult, which, you know, I think about this year, right, 2020, and everybody keeps talking about 2020 and how they can't wait till it's over. I heard it again on the radio this morning, like, Oh, only two more months until this horrible year is over. And I just feel like people are in for such a rude awakening because I really do think that people are clinging to the idea that on new year's Eve at midnight, suddenly all of our problems are going to go away and you're going to wake up on new year's day with the exact same life that you had on new year's Eve. 
And this year, this really hard year of 2020 is not the only hard year you're going to live in the rest of your life. Like sit with that for a minute, because I feel like people are like, I just got to get through this thing. Well, great. What's going to happen three years from now when something even more terrible happens to you or someone you love, you're going to look back on how you handle this moment, this year, this hardship. And you're going to ask yourself, did you step up? Did you do what needed to be done? Did you keep going? Or did you pull the covers over your head and, and hope that something was going to change? You know, it's really interesting when I hear you talk like that. And because, you know, you, 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 you live a life where you are a mom. You're just a regular person who mm-hmm. just happens to be a visionary. And that's why when I ever hear people talking about, I can't wait. Those people are looking at them. I have to walk away because my mindset and your mindset is already deep into 2021. That's what planners do. You can't make money yeah. thinking 30 day cycles. You're thinking six months in a year because you, you think about rent, you think about budgets. That's how you, that's how you yeah. plan success. People who are thinking 30 days out, they're just people who are just in that rat wheel. They just rolling just to pay yeah. that bill, pay the light bill. And you can never save money like that. And when I, when I look mm-hmm. at what, what you're trying to do with your life and what I've done with my life is that we're just trying to win. And we're trying to win with advice on how you can win, too. And that's the nice part about your brand. That's why I associate it so much with the way I think. We're just doing it different ways. You know, you're being a female. Mm-hmm. I'm being a male. But we're all trying to get people to step up. But it was interesting. I had done this interview with uh, with Bill Yu. Uh, it called Impact Theory. And it went viral. Mm-hmm. It went viral. Tom, yep. Yep. And it went viral. And I was, uh, I was walking into a, um, a Whole Foods. And this guy walked up to me. And he went, you changed my life. I go, Aww. I go, what the I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to give me some peanuts. Okay. I'm trying to give me some peanuts. Right? <laughs> this guy walks up to me. He said, you're Rashawn McDonald, right? I go, yeah. He said, you changed my life. I didn't know what he was talking about. And I, and I, and I take that back to you in your book, when you're talking about this lady walked up to you, just exposed to life in front of your son. And mm-hmm. you're trying to figure mm-hmm. out, you know, this is a lifestyle that you, you know, that you requested, but you didn't expect the res- the end results right. to all this. And so, so when right. I get these moments, you know, they do catch me off guard, even though I know that I'm an award-winning baker. And so people walk down, I'll be in the airport. People go, that's my man. He can bake. I go, yeah, you know, you know, yeah, that's right. Cause I do post baking <laughs> cupcakes on my, on my social media. So they should be able to recognize that. So how do you deal with the unexpected, even though, you know, you should expect that. I guess the question I'm trying to get to you, Rachel, to respond to. <laughs> You know, I, at first, <laughs> I think like, honestly, when you reach a new level of success, you don't know what the heck is going on, right? right? You're like, whoa, this is wild. And it, you know, I do talk about this in the book. It was very overwhelming for me to come to terms with it. And I finally did, you know, I spent months kind of vacillating between, honestly, do I want to do this? Which sounds, well, I don't know how it sounds, but I really thought like, are you, are you capable of handling this much um, like honestly, like holding that space for other people or carrying other people's stories or showing up in this way. And it took me a long time to come to terms and to step into it. And I'll tell you practically, and I don't know if this will help your listeners, but this is definitely something for other people who have any kind of a platform. I honestly made a decision that if I was going to continue to do this work, if I am in public, I am ready to be there for other people. So 
nine times out of 10, no, especially in COVID, nobody stops me, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm, like, I've got a mask on. Maybe they don't even know it's me. They, I, nobody stops me, mm-hmm. but I get stopped. And when I get stopped, it's not, Hey, I love your work. It tends to be something much more in depth or much more emotional because of the kind of things that I talk about and write about. And in that moment, I just think like, I want to show up for this community. I want to do the very best I can for them. I went on a run this morning at the lake, which is a sacred practice for me. And I was running and someone, you know, started yelling my name. Now I could absolutely, I got AirPods in. I could just keep on running and pretend that I didn't hear that person behind me. But again, if, if I'm going to do this, then I have to be in community with these people and I have to be grateful for that. And I want those women, especially to know that I see them. And so I turned around and ran back to her and it was Andrea, looked her in the eye, heard her story, want, you know, gave her a moment. And, and then we just kept, I just kept on running because that's what this is. So for me, like I said, it helped me to prepare myself for the fact that I don't know if I'm going to get stopped, but if I am, I feel like I have been blessed with this platform. Now I've worked my butt off to get here, but I also believe that God gave me this opportunity. And if I believe that someone greater, something greater than me gave me this moment, this opportunity, this community of, of fans and readers, then I am going to own that responsibility and be present for them if they have a, a moment with me out in the world. Um, I 100% agree with you. I'm talking to Rachel Hollis. Hey, Rachel. Okay, you know, that's what she did. <laughs> hey, Rachel, look out. Didn't see that coming. Yep, just you know, like that. <laughs> didn't see that coming. Uh, you know, Rachel, I, I managed Steve Harvey uh, for like 16 years. So in fact, you know, he was one of our good friends in 2000. He was a very popular comedian and and then I did the did the Family Feud deal. I did the HarperCollins deals with uh, the books that sold millions worldwide and was translated in over 30 different languages. And in each step that I went along, more fame came his way. And I just mm-hmm. got to watch. So I, when I hear your story, I, I, I look back and reflect because I, 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 I truly understand what you're talking about. And each step mm-hmm. along the way, he, he used to fight it. He used to fight yeah. the, that, that, that massive amount of fame that came and the responsibility that came with that fame and defining what was his what was his role in all of this? I, I remember, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in, in 29, 20, 2009, the book. Think like act like a lady, think like a man came out, you know. So three million copies. We were on Oprah, like regular on Oprah. We sold sixty thousand books in one day while sitting on Oprah. Wow! And uh, and you know that's a massive amount of books to sell. Absolutely. And uh and then uh and then and then and then twenty ten I did the Family Feud deal. So we kind of crossed over. We went from a very popular black comedian to a, a, mm-hmm. a, a to a comedian who was being recognized. As people thought that was a joke, a, a black comedian talking about relationships, and it just exploded worldwide. And then with the Family Feud, and we was crossing over, you know, even though our talk show, and then the talk show launched in 2012. And so I remember in 2014, we was walking in Chicago, and this large group of uh, from the Asian community came over, and they couldn't speak English at all, but they knew who he was. And I went, I looked mm-hmm. at him, I said, Steve, your life would never be the same, brother. Uh, I said, awesome. I said they can't even speak English. 
and they know who you yeah. are. Yeah, <laughs> and they know who you are. They That's who, so real. They know who you are, and it, and it has not been the same ever since. And 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 I recognize yeah. what you're saying because you know. Rachel, you're only going to get bigger. You're, you're, you're introducing yourself and your brand to my market. My market is a predominant African-American market. 90% of my followers are female. Uh, I think they just like the way I bake. But, of course, I think I do see some <laughs> nice things <laughs> that motivate them to be successful because they're entrepreneurs. I, I'm really big on pushing mm-hmm. entrepreneurs, both male and female, in my, yeah. in my whole volume of money-making conversation. But when I, when I read your book, my biggest takeaway is that, you know, you're a mom. And, and it, it's a testament how women are becoming such an entrepreneurial force in our society today. I, when I look at women, you, you, you shouldn't, you have to, you can't wait till 2021 because there are bigger opportunities for in 2021. Yeah. I always believe this. My statement is that the COVID, as bad as it is, allowed me to catch up. It allowed me mm. to level the playing field. I, once I got over the shock of the reality that, okay, my life is going to change forever. And I, I, I didn't know how many gloves I had to take to the grocery store. I didn't know if I needed a mask. Right. I didn't know yeah. what, if I touched a, a gas pump. Should I, should I, should I, like the Perel, you couldn't find that on the store. What could I wash my hands with? Mm-hmm. Once I got over that shock, Rachel, I was good. I was good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think for, for, this is always true for entrepreneurs and business owners. I have such a heart for this community as well, because I've been a business owner for 17 years. And what I know to be true is we're, we're not at the end of this. If we found a cure today, we still would deal with the economic fallout from what has happened for years. And I don't say that to freak people out. I say it because as leaders and as business owners, we have to be aware. It's not something to have fear about. It's okay. What do I need to do to make sure me and my team, me and my family are good? How do I need to show up? How do I need to pivot? How do I need to serve the community, the customer, the clients that I have? So that I can continue to grow, so that I can continue to expand. I think we've all seen this. We've seen businesses who have not been able to handle the pressure, and we've seen businesses that have pivoted. Like I, I, you know, I live in Austin, right? So I remember Tito's, Tito's vodka, which is my favorite thing to mix into a cocktail. Um, when it first happened, you saw all of these liquor companies. They were like, all right, we're making hand sanitizer now. Mm-hmm. We, we just saw, we saw restaurants that had never, ever had delivery, figure out how to do delivery or curbside. We, we just saw, I, I love it because we've seen the human spirit. We've seen the human spirit show up again and again. And I, you know, I think about this a lot because I have pivoted I feel like I've pivoted 20 times since March. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, my my business was predominantly from live events that I can't do anymore. And that you know, you pee your pants over that. That's a that's a punch in the face and you can sort of sit down and so many people, so many people were like just, you know, close down this thing. Just get rid of this thing and I'm like, "Nope." I will find a way. And so what I would say to those of you who are listening, who you've got that side hustle, you've got that business, you, you're, you're trying to grow and expand. You have got to stay focused on where you are going. You have got to fill up your cup 
only with the words and the inspiration of people who are thinking like you are thinking, meaning like go watch those motivational videos on YouTube, go listen to podcasts that are going to inspire you. Because if you listen to the world, if you listen to maybe your mama, your friends, maybe your spouse, people are so scared right now and their fear will take hold of your heart if you let it. And so I just keep my eyes on the horizon. I keep my eyes on the horizon. I know where I'm going. I do not let other people speak their fear into my heart. And I stay focused because the biggest, some of the biggest companies in the world were built inside of a recession. And if you can just keep your eyes on where you are going, keep doing the work, keep expanding the ways that you need to expand, you will come out the other side of this stronger and you will have surpassed people who couldn't stay in the fight. So just keep focused on where you're going and keep going. My friend, it's 30 minutes. Okay. You, our, yeah. our relationship has been flying along and it means it's been a great interview or Rachel Hollis new book didn't see that coming uh, HarperCollins I made a lot of money with HarperCollins so I know they know me over there <laughs> three number one bestsellers I tell you we, we, we kept them in business then I think in 20, two, 2009 but again thank nice. you for coming to my show I hope, I hope you'll be a regular on my show and uh, like I said yeah uh, thank you this is uh, great you're amazing uh, we, uh, you know we, we, we obviously grew up differently we obviously your, our genders are differently but but uh, I, I so relate to what you are experiencing and what you're trying to say to my audience as well as to your audience. And uh, again, uh, the future is on our side and, uh, and the future means we will speak to each other again in the future. Thank you, Rachel, for coming Absolutely. on my show. Absolutely. Thank you. My next guest, Ashley M. Fox, is a former Wall Street analyst, a Howard University grad, HBCU, and an expert in her field as a financial education specialist. After helping manage money for both millionaires and billionaires during her career on Wall Street, Ashley quit her job and started her own company, Empify. Empify, merging of the words empower and modify. It's a, it's a financial ed tech startup that was created to show both adults and children how to build wealth. Since 2014, Empify has reached thousands of individuals, and its programs have been implemented in over 50 different schools and organizations across the country. Her work and story have been featured on Jim Cramer's The Street, Yahoo Finance, Rolling Out Magazine, Philly.com, Fox News, ABC, Huffington Post, Glamour Magazine, and Forbes. Please welcome to Money Making Conversation, Ashley M. Fox. How are you? How are you? Did I miss anything, Ashley? Because you know you got a lot to talk about. Did I miss anything? You know, I, I want to make sure everybody know you are the bomb. You know when it comes to what I'm we're about to talk about. You know, I get a lot of people on the show. They have they they kind of have the credit. They you know they they throw some credits out there. But you your credits all at the top of the the food chain credits there. You know. <laughs> How do you feel about that when you when you you get out there working in your brand? Because that's what it's all about. You gotta you gotta gain respect for your brand. Then you have to put it out there so people can know about your brand because you left Wall Street. Tell about tell us about just update. I mentioned it in the credits. Updates about how did you make that decision? Because a lot of people are afraid when they leave a solid base to something that's not so clear. I think for me. One, I never wanted to be an entrepreneur. I always wanted to be a profound African-American on Wall Street. Mm -hmm. So so after being there, ultimately, my goal was to do something bigger and better. I think working on Wall Street, I worked with millionaires and billionaires. So if you had at least $25 million, it was our job to manage your money. And after a while, when you are working with millionaires and billionaires and you realize that you deserve to be just like the client, 
when you're on the other end of the table, you realize you're not going to get there serving the wealthy people. Mm -hmm. And for me, I always actually wanted to be a teacher. Mm-hmm. I just never became a teacher because in my mind, I felt like teachers didn't make a lot of money. So if I wanted to make a lot of money, I needed to major in the subject of money and I needed to work on Wall Street. But after a while, I felt like the things that I was learning, what I was getting exposed to. So I saw where people were spending their money, where they were traveling, where they were living, what they were investing in. And I felt like you shouldn't have to come from money, work in finance, major in finance to learn how to manage, save and invest your money. And so ultimately, I just got to a point where I had a ceiling. I knew something was out there bigger and better. And I did take that leap. It wasn't the easiest thing. I did I did lose a lot along the way. Mm-hmm. But for me, it, was, it, was, it wasn't about the money anymore. It was about what was the inside of me saying, what, what was my calling? And I knew that I was here for something bigger. And keeping rich people rich wasn't it. But I needed that experience to make sure that I had the tools and resources to educate people who did not get the same exposure that I was given. Now, do you know that because I'm driven by money? I think everybody's driven by money. I remember I went to college. My degree is in mathematics. I started out in civil engineering because I felt that would pay me the most money. Then I realized that wasn't my calling. I, eventually, my degree was in mathematics. My minor was in sociology. Do you driven by are you driven by money or are you driven by the opportunity to make money? I don't think I'm driven by either, to be honest. I think. I'm a, I'm a big proponent of, of, of just knowing that success makes noise because I remember even when I left my Wall Street career, people were like, you left from working with millionaires and billionaires to work with people who don't have money. And it made me feel like I was crazy. But in all actuality, I was just like, yes. And for me, I created a space. I mean, we all say we don't learn about financial education in schools, but nobody really wants to go put it into the school system because it's not the norm. For me, it was like this has to happen. This will happen. And I'm going to figure out how to make it work. And then I started to make money. So for me, I chose happiness over money. And Mm -hmm. the more I focused on serving people, the more I focused on doing what I felt was my purpose driven life calling, um, the more money started to come to me. So I created a space where I would go pitch schools and find out how they ran their schools, understanding how they ran their budget to say, Hey, let me teach financial education to these students. But I think I created a need that was once there, but no one knew how to provide that need. And so in all honesty, chasing money, when I did it, I wasn't happy. So then I realized, let me just do what makes Ashley happy because I'd rather wake up every single day doing what I love and doing what I love and serving the people that I serve. Opportunities come to me so much more than when I was just looking to make money. And I think also too, when you're just looking to make money, people can feel that. Like I can't teach financial education to people who don't have a lot of money and then looking to make money off of them. Now it defeats the whole purpose of me serving the world that I felt like God put me here to serve. And so I found that the more I serve, the bigger the opportunities got, the bigger the opportunities got, the more people saw that it worked and the more successful I became. I'm talking to Ashley M. Fox. She's a financial education specialist. Uh, it's been about two years since we spoke with Ashley. Now, the whole the, the your curriculum in schools has uh, elevated to over 50 different schools. Now, that's ironic that you said you wanted to be a school teacher and uh, you left to be in finance and now you're back to implementing school. T- so you basically are doing what you wanted to do. But you are controlling, controlling the tone, <laughs> you know, right. the tone of, you know, in other words, you know, you create a curriculum that that values your passion. And now you're teaching it as a school teacher would teach your brand and educate the masses like you wanted to do, wanted to do. And so when you when you when you talk about young people, what is the difference that you find the most unique when you're talking to young people about money and talking to adults about money? I think working with kids, there's there. OK. 
So when you're an adult, we were once that child where possibilities were infinite. Yes. We were once that that child who thought we could do, be, and have everything. And the more we grow up, include, including our experiences, growing up with our parents and our environment, society, the news, we then we then don't feel like it's possible. So we feel like we have to go to work every single day because we have to pay bills. That dream of being happy no longer exists because we feel like we got to do what we got to do. Working with a child, the possibilities are infinite. Shifting their mindset is infinite. And I think there's less conditioning when you deal with a child than it is with an adult. Now, it's not impossible with an adult. You just got to break through a lot more barriers because they've been told no too many times. They've been afraid too often. Whereas a child, they still believe it's possible. A child hasn't seen a bill, so let me prepare you for what a bill looks like, but then also show you how you can build wealth like the people you idolize. But let me start early so that you don't make the same mistakes that adults have made in the past. Um, so in all honesty, it's, it's a lot easier to teach a child because they believe and also they, they're there to learn. They know they're coming to school to learn, whereas adults, they're fear. There's doubt, there's worry, there's I don't have time. A child, they don't have those excuses because essentially they're kids. They haven't gotten to that point in life where they, where they would tell themselves no um, because society has told them no too often. You know, that's really important that you say that. I would tell people that uh, when they look at their life, when they hit 40 and 50, that they're really... When you don't know what you want to do with your life, just look at look back when you were 18 to 25, you know, when you were fearless, when you had dreams that, like you stated, the dreams of the impossible until you started putting up these stop signs or you got married or you went off to a military mm-hmm. assignment or, or you just your dreams. Or, I can't do this because we are a very self-defeating uh, race of people. Once we reach a certain age, I'm not going to try to do that. And that's what a lot of people just kind of like give up. They give up on how they look in the mirror. They give up on what they can do in the car they drive, the house they live, the neighborhood they live in. And that really is true because as a young person, all you see is what I could, can be. And I always tell people, I never tell a, a child what they can't be. Now, if they, now if they can't sing, I tell them, hey, you know you can't sing. You need to stop all that madness, okay? Maybe you can rap. Now, try rapping, but you can't sing, okay? And you know you can't dunk. But from a physical standpoint, but from a mental standpoint, you're, you're unlimited on what you can do as long as you stay in the lane of what you're capable of doing. And that's what you were just implementing right there, that adults tend to, during the teaching process, they got all these limiters that they keep putting in their brain. Oh, I, I don't have enough money to do that. Oh, I don't have time to do that. Why would I want to do that? Why are you just telling them how? They're telling themselves what they can't do. That's really distracting Correct. when you're trying to teach people how to be successful. Can you can you can you can you get them to overcome that, or you just lay down the the the, the plan and some some are gonna do it, and a lot of them are not gonna do it. So I'm a firm believer that things are not taught; they're caught. Mm-hmm. And I think when people are ready, they'll be open to it. So one of the biggest things, and this is since since I've left my Wall Street career, I've never solicited what I did. I never said, "Hey, I can show you how to make a bunch of money." Let me show you how to do this. I get people to a point where they're ready. They've exhausted all options. They've taken the classes they could take. They went to the bank. They try to learn everything possible, yet they don't feel connected to the people that are providing the information that they need. And they get to a point where they say, okay, I'm frustrated being frustrated, but I know I deserve to make a change. And ultimately, that's why the word Empify was created, because it's one thing to give people education. But in all honesty, everything we teach, you can Google it. But the real question is, why don't we take that information off of Google and actually implement it? That means that there's a mental barrier that is stopping us from executing on the information we have access to. And I think it's one thing to get information, but it's also another thing to get that with inspiration. And so that's where the empower part of Empify comes in. 
So the first three letters are EMP that comes from empower because I can give you the resources, but I need you to feel empowered to know that you can do something with these resources, no matter where you are, no matter how much you have, it is still possible. And then ultimately when you have that inspiration, you have the tools and resources, it then changes the way you see yourself in the role of money in your life, which is where modify comes from because that's where the change takes place. And so ultimately we start with the mind. If I can change your mind, I can change your bank account. So we focus on your thought process. We know what you feel. We know what you're dreaming of. We know what, what's uncomfortable for you. And we literally do the complete opposite of that. And then once we do that, give you the tools and resources, and then you realize, hey, I actually can do this. Hey, maybe these beliefs that I have are not mine. Maybe society put them in my mind. Maybe my parents gave me these fears, but they're not my narrative. And so we take those narratives and those beliefs and we change the thinking behind the person with the money. And once you have the tools and resources, you go running after that. Ashley M. Fox, um, you know, when I interviewed you a couple of years ago, you was a bad girl back then. You was a bad girl. <laughs> you, you're on fire now. You're on fire. I, I'm just listening to you going, this girl here is, you know, because we, we all learn. I've learned. I've grown. I've grown as an interviewer. I've grown as a person. My brand, I, I know exactly where my brand is and pushing it in the right direction. And I'm listening to a person who's really focused, who knows. And I'm not saying you wouldn't focus when I first interviewed, but you on fire now. Tell us what makes you have such a strong comfort zone and how did you get to this point to be as comfortable as I'm hearing you speak now? And as I've been following your brand on social media, every time an article pops up, I read it about Ashley M. Fox. Tell us this whole March too. And I know you're not there where you're trying to get but i do notice a different tone a different message being spoken by ashley and fox am i right absolutely um i think i think i think as the as i grow the company grows i think there's been a lot of years of spiritual internal work a lot of years of therapy um also and to be honest me recognizing what my beliefs were around there you like go. one of the biggest things that i've noticed is while i can sit and say hey i want to be a millionaire the idea of having a million dollars actually frightens me, right? So there's times where I want to have big dreams, but when I'm presented with the opportunity, I get scared. I remember when I got my first six-figure contract, it was just this mind-blowing experience. But it was like, hey, you can't sit here and say you want to be a billionaire, and you're afraid to cash a check for, for over $100,000. And so I think as I break through my mental barriers, as I do more, the company grows right along with me. So I personally do not teach anything that I do not do or have not done. And it's a lot easier because it's not just about, I read a book and I learned how to teach individuals how to invest in stocks. It's no, this is how I started. This is what I've learned and this is what I do. And let me try to understand you to make it, to make it easier for you to understand. And so I think the more I grow, the bigger I get, the more people I serve. So we recently, we recently um, launched our Wealth Builders Community app. I would have never envisioned me being a black woman in tech, right? But every morning I would wake up, go into the mirror and say, you are, uh, you are the owner of, a, of an ed tech startup. You are the owner of an app that impacts thousands of people from all over the world. And then when it happened, it was just like, a, oh my gosh, it's here. But it wasn't about something that I wanted. It was about who I was. And I'm a firm believer. You don't attract what you want. You attract who you are. So when I started to believe I deserve six figure contract, when I started to look at $100,000, like it wasn't a lot of money, that's when the money started to come faster. But when I was afraid, the money was coming slower. When I was afraid I would lose money, money was coming slower. But if I knew that I was going to keep going, that this was going to work and I'm going to change the world, when I changed my thinking, the company changes. So I think, again, as I grow, the company grows. The bigger I get, the company gets. And not just me as an individual or a brand, but my thought process, like, understanding that, hey, 
we could make a quarter million dollars in a month and saying that doesn't frighten me anymore. Right. But at one point making $10,000 in a month, that scared me at one point. Now it's like, I can't pay my bills with $10,000. We got to do bigger things. We got to get better things. But the more people we impact, the bigger the business gets. And so I focus on serving the people because if we could serve a billion people, we could make a billion dollars. And now it's figuring out how do we get to a billion people to reach that mark. You're listening to Money Making Conversations with Rashawn McDonald. We'll be right back. Cars today are like a computer on wheels, but you can't fix any of these new features yourself. So when something breaks, it could cost you a fortune. And now is not the time for expensive repairs. That's why you need CarShield. CarShield has affordable protection plans that can save you thousands for a cover repair, including computers, GPS, electronics, and more. CarShield understands payment flexibility is a must. Plans are customizable and is lower is $99 a month. No long-term contracts or commitment. Plus, you get to pick your favorite mechanic or dealership to do the work and CarShield takes care of the rest. They also offer complimentary 24-7 roadside assistance and a rental car while yours is being fixed. CarShield is America's number one auto protection company. For as low as $99 a month, you can protect yourself from surprises and save thousands. Call 1-800-CAR-6000 and mention code MONEY, M-O-N-E-Y or visit CarShield.com and use code MONEY, M-O-N-E-Y N-E-Y to save 10%. That's carshield.com, code money. A deductible may apply. Welcome back to Money Making Conversations. I'm your host, Rashawn McDonald. You know, when we started this interview, uh, Ashley said, uh, how many minutes I got? Because see, you know, she got something to say now. I, I, I'm so impressed with your tone and your leadership in this call because that's all I want from individuals who call me on Money Making Conversation for their message to be heard. And you're absolutely right. Unless you believe in something, I know for years, Ashley, as successful as I have been in my life, it wasn't until my 40s that I realized that I, I, I accepted my success based on who I was and what I was capable of doing. I just use phrases like right place, right time, just lucky. I know somebody, you knock on wood, all those corny phrases that have nothing to do with being successful. And people use them all the time. And what those phrases do, they limit your capabilities and also limit you in knowledge of what you really are capable of doing. And I like you. Mm -hmm. I remember in 1995, uh, Steve Harvey and I, Anthony Brown, we did a concert in uh, the music hall in um, Houston, Texas. And I, I, I was my first concert I ever promoted. And I had to write a check to Steve for $57,000. And that's in 1985. And I went, I couldn't believe I was writing that check. Just like you couldn't believe you had a six figure. And, 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 and the thing about it is that once you believe and understand that this is part of your life, part of your mantra, part of your mentality, then guess what? You could write another check like that. But if you stop in disbelief and awe and get giddy like this is not normal. And that's all she's saying mm -hmm. right now. This is the normal way she thinks now. See, the people that she was doing these twenty five million dollars and these billion dollar deals with and all these people walk around believe me they think a certain way and i think a certain way mm -hmm. too because guess what i'm successful so I, I go in the grocery store i don't if i have a coupon i use it i'll tell you that i use it but guess what i just go in the grocery store and shop and in fact sometimes mm -hmm. i walked out of the grocery store the other day i didn't I, I i didn't even know how much i paid for groceries i just gave my credit card mm -hmm. because that's mm -hmm. not part of my mantra to worry about how much i'm going to spend it's the fact that i have money that can buy it. And that is the mm -hmm. mantra that people have to do as an adult. You get to that point, you start saying, I can't live in this type of house. I can't drive this because I, because guess what? I, I don't have the tax money. I don't, I, well, what, what's going to happen next year? Well, I don't think like that. 
I successful people plan next year. They don't think what's not going to happen next year. If you plan next year, I'm a six month, I'm a year. The average person thinks 30 days and you cannot be successful thinking in 30 day increments in your life. Because that means you worry about the rent. You worry about stuff that you actually should be controlling by planning. And that's why I wanted to bring you back on the show, because the mentality you've always talked about has been about planning, correct? Mm hmm. In abundance. Don't forget abundance. And with that being said, this has been the pandemic here. You know, they mm -hmm. shut us down financially. I know you've been busy. I know people have been asking you how to how to budget, how to save money. How can you invest in the pandemic, and the wild thing about it, the stock market is actually, when this pandemic hit in March, it crashed. Mm -hmm. But the stock market has mm -hmm. set some records this year as far as a growth. Absolutely. It's a lot of millionaires and billionaires pretty happy out there during the pandemic. How do you invest during the pandemic, Ashley and Fox? So, honestly, I think, well, in 2008 was the most outside of this stock market crash was the previous stock market crash. And I was in college. And I remember watching on the news not fully understanding, this is back when I was, uh, I think I was a junior in college. Yeah, I was a junior or sophomore. And I realized that it was something going on. It's exciting to watch, but I wasn't fully clear. As I got educated with the stock market, I realized that next time the market crashes, I'm going to go in. Because the way I look at crashes, I look at it like it's a Black Friday sale. Everything drops in price. And in all honesty, that is the only time we see red and we panic. If we walk into a store and we see red, we know that's on sale. We want to buy it. But when we see red in the stock market, we get frightened. And I think when the stock market crashed, and again, it had every right to crash because there was so much uncertainty. We had no idea what was going to happen. But because of that, I also had to ask myself, are companies like an Apple or Walmart or grocery store and Amazon, are all these companies going to go out of business because we are in quarantine? When in fact, let's be smart. While restaurants may be taking a hit, what are we doing more of? We're more on our phones. We're doing more social media. We're watching more of television. We have to go to the grocery store. So immediately I took my thought process and it's like, who's winning right now? Mm -hmm. Who is going to come out of this strong? Because everybody took a hit. But in my mind, these companies will, with time will go back up. And literally my portfolio is up over 100% because when I saw the opportunity to buy at a cheap price, I took advantage of it. And so whether the market crashes, whether the market is up, you have to sit and ask yourself, why am I investing? What is this for? And who do I feel like will be on top? It doesn't take a rocket scientist for somebody to know that every time Apple releases an iPhone in September, right before the holidays, people stand in line. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that while there are many sneaker companies out there, the number one sneaker company in the world is Nike, right? Their sales were up 82% online sales during the pandemic. So while the news is telling us people are, are out of jobs, People aren't spending money. They are spending money because we don't have anything else to do but to be on our phones and to use technology. And so there are companies that are winning. And I think you always have to look for the opportunity versus operate in fear because there's tons of ways to take advantage of this pandemic. But in all actuality, I think it's one of the best things about this pandemic is that it caused everybody to be still. It, it helped us realize you can't depend on a government. You can't depend on your job. Therefore, you have to depend on yourself. And yourself right. is good enough. We've always been good enough. And I think when we shift the mindset and turn the TV off, we see this as an opportunity because everything happens for a reason. We just have to see that reason as an opportunity for us to become better, both mentally and financially. And um, with that being said, 
what some this may be a general question now and if you say Rashawn, I, just, I don't want to respond to that what 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 were some of the mistakes that you think that as you know we were given opportunities through the cares act and apply for different funds and you know um, so a lot a lot of people did a lot of people didn't but did any were there anything that that people should have done that they didn't do during the pandemic that would have helped them out a little bit financially um well, for one, I think we should have turned the television off. Like, in all honesty, if you really think about mm-hmm. what's on the news, you hear about Trump, you hear about the coronavirus, mm-hmm. and you hear about black crimes or crimes done on black people. Other right. than that, there's nothing in the news. Nothing. Right. I agree. So understanding that when I watch these things on the news, what feelings do they invoke? Because if it's not causing you to feel joy, then you don't need to consume it because the more you internalize it, the more you're going to manifest more of it. And so I think the biggest thing is because we were sitting in the house, we had a television, we were forced to consume because we can't go about and do our normal day-to-day things. But I think the biggest thing that I think people really didn't pay attention to was the fact that this wasn't a time of panic. This was a time to start over. This was a time to reevaluate. This was a time to get educated. This was a time to follow that dream that you've been putting off. And I think instead of focusing on how can I become better, all we thought about is how this is making the situation worse. And you saw that in, in so many people, just even on social media, but it was just like, in my mind, it was like, I immediately was, okay, what does the world need from us right now? And in the midst of the pandemic, we made the most money we ever made at a comp- in the company because we sat and thought, what do people need from us right now? Where can people get educated right now? How can we serve people right now? Let's come out with our app right now because people are sitting at home. They need something to do. But let's now instill greatness in these people. Let's give them the education that they can't get in their school system. Let's give them the tools and resources you can't find on your timeline or on, or on your television. How can we rewire their brain at a point where all we have is their their attention because there's nothing else for them to do. And I think people focusing on the opportunity is what would have gotten us, made us a lot stronger. There are a lot of people who, who did great things during the pandemic, but there are a lot of people who every day they woke up, they were, they were scared they were going to lose their job. They were afraid that their stimulus check wouldn't come on time. It's like we can't live in fear because that's all we're surrounded by. We have to literally unlearn what we have been taught to learn that society and our upbringings have given has given us really it's really good that you're saying those things because I, I just love interviewing you you just really just confirm a lot of things that i'm doing i just like talking to smart people because <laughs> i used this time when the pandemic hit i used it to really look at my brand you know really the first quarter was uh identifying my brand the second quarter was bringing in legal to protect my brand making sure all my 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 ends were, lo- were tied correctly then i made sure my social media i launched a new platform called hbc awards during the pandemic and in the third quarter i bought an office building in atlanta all this, all this stuff was happening during the pandemic because i knew in the fourth quarter guess what this country is going to go to a new normal and we need to be and we'll reopen and we need I need to be functioning in a manner. So now I'm more organized and more confident than I've ever been. And it's basically tied to what you were just saying. You don't play during the disaster. You don't unplan. You plan. When things look bad, you don't run. You figure out how to survive. And so a lot of people, they run and then they hide. And then other people who don't hide see the opportunity to succeed. And uh, that's what you just keep repeating over and over in such a strong manner. That's why you built out the brand Empify, which is empower and modify. EMP is empower. 
Afi is the back end of Modify. And when you look at all these things, tell us a little bit more about your app. And also, you hit it a little bit, the Wealth Builders community. Talk a little bit about that so we can get a good feel. And also, how can we download that? And also, any webinars you have coming up as well. As, I always like to use her middle name. She kind of like forgets it sometimes. I have to remember. <laughs> Ashley M. Fox. Thank you. <laughs> Um, so our Wealth Builders Community app, um, you can literally go to wealthbuilderscommunity.com and you can see okay. everything that we offer. Okay. So literally just imagine the Netflix of finance in the palm of your hand. Ooh. So you can go to Netflix and you can find all the different types of entertainment. Imagine literally saying, hey, I want to learn how to invest. Where can I go? And it all is in your hand, literally lives in your account. But here's the beauty of it. You're now going through this journey, not alone, but you're going through it with thousands of people who are just like you from all over the world. And I think we can't, at, at this point, we can't sit at the dinner table and talk about learning how to build wealth. We can't talk about how your stock portfolio was up. We don't talk about how we're investing for our kids to make sure that they're not taking out student loans. We don't have these conversations, specifically in the African-American community, but this should be our norm because that is the norm of wealthy people. They're sitting on their yachts talking about big deals that they're closing, when in all actuality, that's why they continue to sustain their wealth. The conversation is different. The thought process is different. And so ultimately, our wealth builders community is an is a intimate space where you can come together with people who are just like you on the same journey, both working professionals and entrepreneurs, where you're learning how to build wealth brick by brick, layer by layer, where you're celebrated for your successes. When you le you're learning how to open an account, you're processing a transaction, but you're getting advice, tools, and resources, not only from experts, but also people who have been in your shoes, but they are growing every single day because they made wealth building a choice. They made it a commitment, and that's ultimately what our community is about. So we have classes on a weekly basis. We, we're, we're literally about to launch our parent accelerator because a lot of our members are parents. And mm -hmm. it's during the time when it's holiday season, Q4, we're spending tons of money. Companies are projected to make billions this holiday season. Why is it that we're making all these billion-dollar businesses more money, and we look up and we still feel like we have nothing? So we're now literally educating our adults to say, hey, it's great to buy gifts for your family, but what about the gift of wealth? What about buying your kid that stock in the sneaker company because you know the kids are going to want sneakers on holiday season, right? Mm -hmm. But educating the parents to think all the things your parents did not give you, all the tools and resources you wish you would have had, let me show you how to literally educate your children so that you can build for them. So it's literally like Amplify now with this particular accelerator that we're launching in our app is now merging both worlds. We're merging the, the connections and the classes that we've done with our youth and then the classes and the connections that we've done with adults and we're bringing them together. So the classes, adults will be able to take classes, will learn how to open different accounts for both themselves and their children, how to put their kids through college. But also now we're giving them resource on this is how you can also do this with your kids. Not just for your kids, but this is how you can do it with your kids. Bring your family. So now we'll have classes where kids can participate and all of these things will live in the app. And I think it's during the time where, where we're spending so much, now let's literally train our minds to look at opportunities. I know if everybody's going to be spending during holiday season, I need to own these companies that are making billions of dollars during holiday season. And it's literally rewiring the thought process of our community. Um, and it's been phenomenal. It's been a few months now. Um, it's in the App Store, both Google Download and Apple Download. Right. You can get access to it on your iPad or your computer, but literally wealthbuilders.com. Um, wealthbuilderscommunity.com is where you can see everything that we offer. There's tons of everything that we give. Um, but in all actuality, 24-7, 365 access to classes all the time, all day, every day. 
discussions, downloads that we're giving out now. Like there's just tons of things where it's like a secret society of wealth builders where you can't step outside and go to the bank, but you can go here and get the tools and resources in a simple and easy to understand language that doesn't speak to you, but through you and into you. Wow. Ashley and Fox, um, you've given me 29 minutes of your time. You are special. <laughs> Um, thank you. Uh, please give me um, some banners so I can post it on my social media. You know, I got like a million social media Absolutely. followers and uh, 92,000 <laughs> uh, fan club members. And I, I promote you. I love what you do. I learn. And then what you've done for me is it's like a little free ses- lesson, session she's giving me because now I walk away <laughs> confident. But that's what you do, Ashley, and, and continue to do it. And I always know that if you, you drop something, you can contact me, contact my staff or contact me directly because I will do anything for you. You're that special to me. And to hear your tone to hear the leadership in your voice the confidence in your voice i know you found your brand and now you're just building it out that's what excites me so much because of the fact that i've been watching you looking at your sessions and you drop dimes and people liking you what you hear of you and you get nice views on your videos when you drop those you have a voice and people want to hear what you have to say and you're smart and i just want to wrap up something i saw it earlier you know you mentioned uh, in your credits you're howard university graduate how have you it's been such a I think a profound moment during this pandemic to see how HBCUs have been so recognized and donations have come into from private sector to HBCUs. What 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 why have why what has what did the HBCU do for you? I guess I want to ask. And why it's so important that people should know the value of an HBCU and its educational principles. Um for me personally, especially at that time. I knew I wanted to be, I wanted to go to HBCU because I wanted to be surrounded by African-Americans. But I also wanted to go to the best HBCU that supported the career trajectory that I was on. So I knew at Howard, I wanted to be on Wall Street. I found out how much they paid during summer internships. Howard taught me how to eat, how how to dress, how to do interviews, how to build a resume, how to golf. It was so many things that I knew would equip me for the industry that I was going in. And I wanted to be the center of attention. I wanted to be the center of the love that was felt. And I feel like an HBCU gave that to me. So I was surrounded by individuals with the same mindset, with the same goals, with the same vision for themselves. And I wanted to be around excellence. And I think I I knew at that point in my life, I wanted to feel supported, loved and nurtured. And I had the opportunity to do that in a black environment, in a prestigious environment. I knew it was a no-brainer that I needed to go to Howard University. Plus, I didn't want to go too, too far from home because I'm from Philly, but I also didn't want to leave Philadelphia. Um, and Ivy League just wasn't what I wanted. I wanted to be around the culture, the environment, the love, and the support, but also had that intentionality around grooming a black woman who wanted to enter into the Wall Street space. And I loved everything that Howard gave me to prepare me for my Wall Street career. Awesome. Uh, WealthBuildersCommunity.com. They bring together working professionals and entrepreneurs looking for the support needed to grow financially. They will help them develop the wealth building mindset, habits and knowledge necessary to excel so that they that you can achieve financial freedom, create generational wealth and become confident in managing, saving and investing your money. Thank you, Ashley and Fox. I read that directly off her website. That's her mission statement or the mission statement of WealthBuildersCommunity.com. We'll be right back with more from Rashawn McDonald and Money Making Conversations. Don't touch that dial. Organ donations save lives, and some organs can even be donated by a living donor. 
August is National Minority Donor Awareness Month, so let's check in with Dr. Danae Simpson, Assistant Professor of Surgery at Northwestern Medicine. Tell us about the African American Transplant Access Program. So this is my baby. This is a program that I have dreamt about creating since I became interested in transplant as a trainee. And it's a program designed to address the significant disparities that our African-American patients face. The program is designed to educate patients about transplant, let them know what transplant can provide to them, and to help them access the resources that they find so scarce and so challenging to access in order to get them on the transplant path and back to, you know, some type of meaningful life. For more information, visit nm.org slash radio. Hi, I'm Rashawn McDonald, the host of Money Making Conversation. The Cafe Mocha Swag Award is a celebration of black men who are making a difference in our community by empowering others to reach their life goals. From civic leaders, businessmen, activists, celebrities, and everyday dads, the Cafe Mocha Swag Award winner this week is Q Parker, a Grammy Award winning member of the Group 112. The Q Parker Legacy Foundation has a mission of using family engagement and social empowerment to strengthen families throughout the city of Atlanta to generate stronger communities. The Q Parker Legacy Foundation was established five years ago. And so everything that you see about Q Parker, it really comes from my story. Because of me going through those trials, I saw how it affected every aspect of my family. When I decided that I wanted to give back and I understood that my life was about serving and that was the way I was going to repay all the many blessings that I've been able to receive, I wanted to serve. The Cafe Mocha Swag Award represents men who have strength, whose wisdom is assertive, and who is genuine in their spirit. Welcome back to Money Making Conversations. I'm your host, Rashawn McDonald. My next guest, Marlon Evans, receives his BA in political science and MA in sociology from Stanford University, where he competed on the football and track Football, treating track and football. In 2018, Marlon was named CEO of NextQ, an investor that creates and accelerates frontier tech companies with an emphasis on digital health and financial tech. He is on the show today to discuss being a minority entrepreneur, something I am and something we discuss on a regular basis on Money Making Conversation. The story behind the NextCube HBCU Founders Program and the importance of black wealth creation and generational wealth through entrepreneurship. Please welcome to Money Making Conversation, my man, fellow sociology major, I'm a minor, <laughs> Marlon Evans. How you doing, sir? Doing well, thanks. Appreciate you having me on. Well, you know, first of all, let's let's go back to a couple of things. When I when I was reading through your bio, I loved poli sci. I did my degree is in mathematics, but poli sci was uh, something I fell in love with. I, I actually memorized the uh, the Constitution, and uh, because it was just such a fascinating read for me, and then so that's poli sci of me that that I lend myself to you. That's what you got your degree in, and then your master's in sociology. That's my minor. If I had to do it all over again, I would not have gotten a degree in mathematics. I would have gotten a degree in sociology because it really opened my life, my mind on how information is being disseminated in this country and how black people are denied their their story in America. Correct? No, absolutely. Just from a, a structural perspective, and we don't have to go through the the entire entire history of it. I think it's all well well documented. But you know, when I was first starting within political science, I thought I was heading down the law the law school path uh, as a way to help reform some of those inequities. And quickly quickly realized that I think being 
being a lawyer wasn't what <laughs> was in the cards, uh, you know, for me. I mean, I enjoyed those those classes, but really felt like I could have a greater impact by working directly with with people, and that's kind of how I got my got my st- start along this path. Now, when you say path, what what, what path are we talking about? Because, like I said, there's so many different layers to you. I don't want to like think that we're just over here talking because everybody has a journey. You know, when I yeah. got, I left IBM and I became a stand up comic, and then I, then I became a nightclub owner, with a very popular comedy club. Then I became a a sitcom writer, and then I became the manager of Steve Harvey. So there's always a journey to this conversation. Now I'm the host of Money Making Conversation, one of several platforms that are important in my life. So. Let's talk about your journey. You know, athlete, being an athlete played a major role in your life. And so was you a scholarship athlete? Talk about that. And then being able to to balance academics and athletics at a school like Stanford. Yeah, no, I was. I was blessed to receive a scholarship to play play football at Stanford. And one of the things about being in that environment, it's like just the rising tide lifts all boats. So I just felt like I was just trying to you know, hit the level of expectation that my peers were, um, were kind of setting for themselves. I'm like, wow, you know, they're the bars that they're setting. Tiger Woods is walking through the the training room. You have someone like Jenny Thompson, an Olympic swimmer, who's, who's just around and you see the dedication that they put to their, their craft. And it just inspires you to, you to do more. So the lessons learned on the athletic field of, what you need to do to be not just successful, but to be at the highest, highest level. I carry those with me into my, you know, daily life as a, as a professional, waking up a little bit earlier than everybody else, putting in a little bit of extra, extra time, making sure that everything you do is at that utmost kind of X level of excellence that you expect for yourself. All of that I learned as, as an athlete. Because that athlete, being an athlete gave you the discipline to to really understand mm-hmm. and also the ability to be a, be a become a leader, work with people. Mm-hmm. That's been important because you know, it's because it's interesting. I look at your resume, you know, football and then track and field because track can be. Can you say track is much more an individual sport? Where football is, is a, team, mean, a team sport. So you had, you had two different mindsets you was working it, working with. You know, you had you on a track. You kind of like push yourself on a football team. You have teammates who can push you, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know, and I have to be a little bit careful because my wife is, is a track coach, so I can't, <laughs> I, can't, I can't say too much on that because she will say it's a team, it's a team sport. Um, but yeah, there is it's obviously more individual in terms of you know it's just you at that at that start. Is you line where, is you running around that oval? Come on now, is you? Yeah. Is you when they when they say go, you go on by yourself, brother. Unless you're doing a relay, you go. It's nobody. Come on, brother, I got you back. If you miss that right. tackle, I got you. <laughs> Nobody's telling you. They tell you you if you slow down, you slow down. You speed up, you speed up. You get tired, you get a cramp, a hamstring is all on you, brother. Uh, so, well, and, so and, I can debate her, but she's your wife, so yeah. I, I won't debate her, okay? Because I'm just trying to get through this interview with you, Mr. Evans, okay? Exactly. <laughs> well, I, th- I think what you what you raised is so so important, especially especially now where, like, um, it's this idea of of hard work, kind of pushing yourself beyond what you you think you can do, just from a, a physical standpoint, is. I think society has kind of said, well, 
what's the easiest path or how can we create something that gives you five shortcuts to get to where you need to be? Whereas the learning that you get from going through those struggles really defines who you are and builds that, that character. So I, I have two daughters of, of my own and I'm, I'm always encouraging them to kind of, when it gets hard, that's the good part. That's when you want to lean in because it teaches you so much about, about yourself and that kind of self-discovery that happens in athletics is the same thing that happens in entrepreneurship where you're starting something from scratch. You have naysayers just like you do in athletics. So you really think you can make it to the NFL. Come on. What are the chances? Same thing happens with starts. You really think you could be the next Facebook or, or Uber. Come on. That's all, you know, it's once in a lifetime type thing. And so you have to hear a lot of no's, a lot of people saying you can't do it. And you still need to be able to kind of push through that. And I think we as a society getting back to, to sociology and, and now more with the advent of, of technology are trying to make it so you don't have to work hard, which I think is ultimately not what's in the best interest of us as people and, and as a community at, at large. You know, it's really, we're going to get to the story behind the Next Cube HBCU founder program. But I wanted to bring up something about working hard and being able to push yourself. Because, you know, we always want to push ourselves and want to stride out, stride to the next level of success. And sometimes I look at my life and I always tell people in my opening uh, introduction, I'm talking about everybody has a different version of what success. Some people is a sizable paycheck. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know if I'm a, if, if satisfaction uh, is in the language of a person who's successful. Because if you have a billionaire, they want to make two billion. You know, you have a millionaire, they want to be a, become a billionaire. You want a person who has one nice car, they might want two cars. They might want three houses. And that satisfaction is what drives you to be successful. Like every morning, you talk about work, I'm, I wake up early. I get up at 4 o'clock, Monday through Friday. I'm up at 4 a.m., 4 a.m. I'm up. Mm. And that's part of my mantra to be successful. I don't, I can't hit snooze. I can't wake up at 4 o'clock on Monday and Two o'clock, I work on Tuesday. I work up at seven o'clock. That's no, that's uh, my whole world of trying to be successful is, is, is incorrect. You know, I was talking to John Hope Bryan and we were talking about from nine to five, you work five to nine is on you. Nine to nine, that's that's mailbox money. And that's the goals of what you're mm-hmm. talking about. You're trying to take advantage of that 24 hours. And that's what the mm-hmm. HBCU founders program that you put together. Let's talk about that. It's about wealth, black wealth creation, which we all mm-hmm. talk about, but rarely experience because you're interesting in the sense, Marlon, because as a as a black athlete, if if black people, especially athletes, had the same entrepreneurial spirit and athleticism, because black people really believe when they go on the back, because I play basketball, I don't care what age, I really believe I can make the NBA. I really believe I could probably play in the NBA, even though I may not have had the talent. Same thing with football. I, you felt you could be an NFL player, okay? Mm-hmm. If we had that same mentality when it came to academics and feel that we could be the next doctor, the next scientist, the next Bill Gates, the next Warren Buffett, that's where your program is really centered on, trying to change that mm-hmm. mantra from athleticism to entrepreneurism, correct? Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a mindset, right? This, this idea that, you not only do you have the capacity and the and the talent, but you um, have to then also be able to kind of think creatively and say, "All right, if this is 
um, if this is something that I am passionate about, you know, solving, is there another way to go about doing that? And that's the innovation component of entrepreneurship is what I think is, is most exciting. And we all have that in our, in our heart, in our kind of souls. Like most people, if you walk up to them and they say, oh, yeah, I have this amazing business idea. I didn't really do anything with it because, you know, I don't even, I didn't even know where to, where to start. Um, and that kind of, uh, fact that a lot of these great ideas are dying on the vine is what inspired us to launch the founders program where we can go into the, at, at, at an early stage at, while they're, they're still students, right. they have an opportunity to take risks that they may not be able to take two, three years out when they're trying to pay bills and, and those types of things. Um, and inspire them at that point to say, here's, here's a process that you can go through. If you do have an idea, here's a platform that can support you getting your idea and turning it into, uh, you know, into reality. And just by simply making that, you know, connection now, we, there's no guarantee, but at least the, uh, opportunity won't just fade away because, the person felt like they didn't have access to the to the resources. And that's what the resource is all about. I, I was reading this by diversity, my commitment to diversity and launch of HBCU founders program on January, January, July 29, 2020, Marlon Evans. There, is, there has to be a better way. You can always do more yeah. when faced with what feels like an insurmountable challenge. I refer back to the message my dad shared with me as a child, which he continues to reiterate to this day. Growing up in Maryland as an African-American in the post-Civil War, civil rights era, I was afforded opportunities to just a decade before were off-limits for Americans. Now, off-limits for Americans, with the pandemic, with what's going on, with social change, what is not off-limits anymore? Where can we go when you set forth a plan that you have in place that started in the pandemic era? Yeah, well, and I think, you know, obviously it's been a horrible situation, but where there's crisis, there's also opportunity. And the fact that things are so virtual now, I mean, we can connect uh, people in a way that we weren't able to do, or we were always able to do previously, but now people are hyper, um, you know, alert to the fact that, okay, I can have an impact on not just 10 students, but hundreds of students, 300 students plus, which is what we have currently signed up in the program, all through a virtual platform where is if we, if we needed to go to each of the, of the hundred HBCUs, like step by step, that we wouldn't be where we are right now and be able to launch a full national program in the course of a four months. So that, I think, number one, just the fact that the, that the technology, the infrastructure is there. And then I think number two, because we have these two things going on, we have the global pandemic and then we have the uh, Black Lives Matter movement. People are now uh, sensitized to that fact of, oh gosh, I didn't even realize all of this that was going on and the inequities. How can I get involved? And now hey, with Molly, programs Molly, like this. I know you just like me when they said that. I, I remember I got so many phone calls from my white friends go, I didn't know. 
yeah. I, how, how did you operate? Well, yeah, we just had to operate, brother, <laughs> sister. I, 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 I'm not, I'm not going to tell you that I'm some hero. It's just a, the hand that black people are dealt with. You know, yeah. have to, you know, I, I do get nervous when the police officer pulls me over, black or white. I get nervous because, mm-hmm. quite frankly, I don't know why they're pulling me over. And quite frankly, I don't know the story that I have to make up to go home safely. And so so when I hear when you when you start talking about it, I have to interrupt you because, you know, people when they when they say, I just found out. No, we, we found out a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, that's a part of the, the education, but at least now they, they want to have that conversation. And, and many corporates we've, we've partnered with, with some, they've been, you know, this has been a priority for them in the past and now they're doubling, doubling down. So being able to tie up with AT&T and, and Morgan Stanley and their other corporates that are, we're in conversation with, they realize that they need to be doing, doing more as well and see our, our founders program as a way to reach students in a, um, in a form that they weren't otherwise. And the reality is, and like you said, both of us aren't, aren't HBCU grads. There are a few that get most of the attention. You have the Howards, the Morehouse, the Spellmans of the world that have, you know, traditionally that's where the corporates are going to, you know, to recruit. I was talking to a corporate the other day and they said that, Spelman has something like 750 corporate sponsors, um, which is fantastic. But, you know, what does, you know, the, the, the rural HBCU in Mississippi or Oklahoma or Nashville, like, are they getting that same type of attention? So we were committed as a part of this program to not only service those schools, but we're now up to 60 you know, HBCUs, I wish it was all 100, 100 plus to make sure that every student within the um, one of the HBCUs feels like they have access to to our program. You're listening to Money Making Conversations with Rashawn McDonald. We'll be right back. Cars today are like a computer on wheels, but you can't fix any of these new features yourself. So when something breaks, it could cost you a fortune. And now is not the time for expensive repairs. That's why you need CarShield. CarShield has affordable protection plans that can save you thousands for a cover repair, including computers, GPS, electronics, and more. CarShield understands payment flexibility is a must. Plans are customizable and as low as $99 a month. No long-term contracts or commitment. Plus, you get to pick your favorite mechanic or dealership to do the work, and CarShield takes care of the rest. They also offer complimentary 24-7 roadside assistance and a rental car while yours is being fixed. CarShield is America's number one auto protection company. For as low as $99 a month, you can protect yourself from surprises and save thousands. Call 1-800-CAR-6000 and mention code MONEY, M-O-N-E-Y, or visit carshield.com and use code MONEY, M-O-N-E-Y, to save 10%. That's carshield.com code money. A deductible may apply. Welcome back to Money Making Conversations. I'm your host, Rashawn McDonald. Yeah, and there's 104 HBCU schools, by the way. And I, I, I applaud mm-hmm. that because like a lot of programs, like I, I point out this, they they know it. The, the, the United Negro College Fund doesn't fund, uh, fund all 104 HBCU schools. That's not how it works. You know, it's like it funds what they consider the top or the recommended schools that they have in their program, and it goes from there. So you have to look at schools. I I'm, I was born and raised in Houston, Texas, so I had Texas Southern 
in Houston, and mm-hmm. I had Prairie View A&M down the road, then I had Grambling next, over the next day in Louisiana, then I had Southern University. Mm-hmm. So the HBCU experience was always around me, but I went to the University of Houston. That was a school, even though I went down to Prairie View, I went, all my friends were there. I went to Texas, I went to Southern University, all my friends were there. I said, well, I want to go somewhere where I, I wanted a different experience. But that didn't mean I lost my black identity. I lost my black culture. Because when I see HBCUs, I feel it's not only a need for me to bring value and also the, when I realized that 80% of the dentists come from HBCUs who are black, you know, 80% of the teachers from HBCUs are black, mm-hmm. you know, 40% of the congressmen who are black in Congress are, are from HBCU schools. All these numbers are not numbers I'm making up. 20, 23% of the black STEM graduates are from HBCU schools. All these numbers are numbers that I have memorized and I, are, and I speak it out because people need to, people who don't know are shocked. Huh? Yep. Yep. So what yep. I'm saying when I say that, Marlon, is that it's important that people don't act like they're doing a favor. Like, you know, no. you know, HBCUs, you should be like pumping billions of dollars into HBCUs when you see the results that's coming out of them. At, well, you hit it right on the head because we're I'm, I'm an investor. Like mm-hmm. I have shareholders that I have to, to report back to and they're looking for a return on on investment we're going into these these schools yes there's a component of it where it's it's educational and we want to make sure that the students will be you know who, who haven't had access to understand what it means to to be an entrepreneur but make no mistake about it this isn't just a, a theoretical exercise we ex- anticipate that by ha- getting connected into these these schools and helping develop some of these ideas, some ideas coming out of it are going to be ones that we want to invest in. And we're going to be first in line because we were there at the, at the beginning. And, and that's what all investors want. They want that proprietary deal flow that they get to see first before, you know, everybody else, you know, jumps on the bandwagon. And, and we feel a hundred percent convinced that as one, two, three, and the numbers start, you know, picking up of really successful startups coming out of HBCUs, then everybody is going to be flooding the, you know, flooding the doors to get, you know, access and, and be on the front lines of it, which is, again, going to be this like rising tide that lifts, that lifts everything. And, and so we're playing our, hopefully a part in that to ignite that spark. Right. And then once it's, once it's lit, then, we anticipate other folks coming around and saying, huh, I didn't realize that there was just that level of, of talent there. Maybe I should take a second look. And that's what I was getting at, you know, not realizing and then being surprised. But then and I, I just really want to you know when I when I read about, you know, uh, Netflix making their donation and, the, mm-hmm. and uh, to the HBCU schools and you know, I, I, I mean, I'm just trying to say it right, is that these donations are long overdue. Let me say that one. Secondly, if you just sit back and realize when I, when I, I saw it nor whenever I hear uh, President Trump, you know, like he's done a favor, like I've done more for black people. Stop. 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 <laughs> stop. Okay. Look, we are not asking for favors. And that's why I think black people have start, mm-hmm. have to start trump, trumpeting their success. And that's what I was talking mm-hmm. about earlier when I was talking about athleticism in the black community. We trumpet that. 
You know, we, we, we see that as a real opportunity to get out of the hood. And a lot of times we don't see that academics is really the real opportunity to get out of the hood and stay out of the hood. It's through academics. And that's what you're doing with this pro with this founders program is moving academics to the forefront and then letting everybody know the value of HBCUs. Am I hitting on the uh, am I speaking in the right direction? You are. You are. I mean, just in that the whole what you just mentioned around uh, athletes and entertainers kind of being put on a, a pedestal, which is great. And just drilling down into that a little bit, just to, to make the point of, well, why are, why were they successful? Because there was a level start at the beginning of our conversation of hard work, of yes. hustle, of ingenuity, of, you know, the chips may have been against them, but they figured out a way. I mean, all of that is entrepreneurship. I, there were some students I was talking to over the weekend. It was a Saturday and a Sunday, and they were involved in this program with the Black Venture Capital Consortium. And I said, first of all, let me just give you guys a shout out for the grind. It's a Saturday. It's a Sunday. And you, you all are sitting in here listening to me share about this, about this program, trying to better yourself. I mean, that mentality is what makes for successful entrepreneurs. And we just want to flip that light and say, look, you can do this as well. You've proven it, whether it's on the athletic field or entertainment or the fact that you're sitting there on a Saturday or Sunday, you've proven you have that desire and that will. Now, let's just make sure it gets tied into the to resources that can help that that grow. And that's what we're we're hoping to do through the HBCU Founders Program, and that's a program. I, I, when I went to high school, Marlon, I was I was just a gifted kid, you know, academically. I just walk in the room, see something, walk out the room. It was just in my head, and so didn't want to pick up a book, didn't care about college. I remember my my daughter, my father was a, a truck driver, and so uh, when he gave me my first job opportunity. Uh, my mentors were forklift drivers and black men who unloaded trucks. So that's what I wanted to be. When I graduated from mm -hmm. high school, despite being in the top percentage of my class, I went and got a job as a forklift driver because that was my vision. That was my, I, I man, they, they had cars. They can go in the grocery store, buy what they want buy. And they were having a good time. I thought I, that's a, that's, that was good enough for me. And it's about raising the standards. And so what happened was at the, at the simultaneously, I was living that life, but I had some teachers that said, this guy is really gifted. And so they moved me into a small group of students, about 10 of us. One of my best friends, Regina Rodney, she graduated from Rice and Michelle Roberts. She graduated from Purdue University. I didn't even know why they went to those schools. I was, that's how far away I was from academics. And when I, mm -hmm. when I say individuals like me are those, are those, can be those casualties if we don't do what you're doing with this program, if we don't put in, and in, in, I think, uh, like I said, put blinders on opportunities that are real and focus kids like me on real opportunities. And then we become mm -hmm. the stars of the community and we go give back because academics are the key for long-term success. As you know, as an athlete, God has given you a, a window where your athletic skill will shine. After a while, they will deteriorate year after year after year. Academically, I tell everybody, you can't repo my degree. My degree, yeah. mathematics degree on that wall, nobody's going to repo that. 
but they can repo your car. They can repo your house. They can repo anything if you don't have a position to be able to pay for it. And that's why I wanted to bring you on the show to talk about this, because you're stopping the repo opportunities in people's lives, especially in the black community, mm-hmm. if they get their academic story together. Mm-hmm. No, I appreciate that. No, I appreciate that. Yeah. And we we, we recognize that um, we're not we have to play our our part, but it's eventually it's going to take a larger kind of effort. And which is why we're pulling in these, these corporates and saying, Hey, look, it's not just um, about writing a check. We need you to engage. We need you to mentor. We need you to be that example for these students to say, Hey, maybe it's, I don't end up going on and launching a business, but I can go work for uh, AT&T or, or Morgan Stanley and, and then maybe I do that for a little while. And then I remember all the things that I learned as a, as an entrepreneur. And then I start my own you know, business, but more and more of us need to, to show up and say, look, this is where here's an example. Here's a, a, a pathway for you to, to get there. And if this is something that you're interested in, we're going to be here to be supportive of that. My my question before we leave the name Next Q, which is really N E X with three. Uh, how, where did that come from? Because the name of the company yeah, is I mean, Next Cubed, even though it says N E X three. Yes, it's uh, it's Next Cubed, and and part of it is that there's kind of you know things often come in come in threes. So there's uh, three aspects to our you know to our business. We we do our investing. We have some uh, work we do with our corporate partners, and then we work with later stage uh, companies. So those are kind of the three main activities. Um, but probably more, you know, symbolically is just thinking about how we can provide kind of exponential um, growth for the companies that are that are working with us. That you bring what you're bringing to the table. We bring what we are bringing to the table. And then that's going to generate even, you know, exponential uh, returns. So that, that's a part of the, the rationale behind the name. And um, in the future, because, you know, I know you said at and on board, uh, you're mm-hmm. working on Morgan Stanley to come on board, these financial ki- commitments to be able to build a model that has long-term success and not some success is not riding the tide of change, which came about mm-hmm. due to the George mm-hmm. Floyd killing and people feeling there's a certain degree of sympathy. This is what I want to make sure, Marlon. I don't want your sympathy. I want your yeah. I, I want your support. I want your support because this is value. This is like, you know, you you know, you 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 mine uh, diamonds because it has value. You 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 mm-hmm. drill for oil because it has value. I'm just letting you you support these HBCUs in the academic opportunity because it adds value. Uh, it brings in uh, corporate citizens, taxpayers, good people who mm-hmm. create uh, high land value and also make this country safe and academically less challenged and more competitive in the global scale. That's why I want to make sure people understand. I don't need your sympathy. I just need you to start mining and supporting the value that HBCUs and African-Americans in general bring to this country. Yep. No, 100%. And that's those are the conversations we're having with the corporates. And Morgan Stanley has signed on. AT&T has signed on. Others will. And what we're sharing with them, and, and they know this, this, this is just fact, like more diverse companies are more successful uh, companies. So they know within their own 
institutions that they need to start recruiting a more diverse pool of talent because that's going to impact their shareholder value down the road. So they understand that they're just needing now to figure out how do we do this on a more systematic way so that we're reaching, you know, all of the, all of the talent and they see our program is one piece of that. There's other things obviously that they'll, they'll be doing to, you know, help, help drive those, those goals. But yeah, this isn't, this is not a, a handout. This is a way for you to create more shareholder value by tapping into great talent that's going to help your your business. And so we, we see it as a win if the companies, or the students going through the program start a company or if they go work for one of our partners, that's also a, a win for us as well. Well, I know you could have appreciated being an athlete who was recruited to a, uh, you know, first tier, tier one institution called Stanford University. And you got that BA in the political science and that master's in sociology. And uh, we have a kinship, my friend. I want, you, I want you to stay in touch with me. I've, I've launched a platform called HBCU Awards where we recognize uh, um, black excellence at HBCUs and black people in general in, in uh, business, entertainment and um, entrepreneurship. And so these are these are lanes I want to be able to advance. And I just wanted to bring you on the show, Marlon, just your platform. But it's a platform you can use anytime you feel like it. OK. No, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. If you want to hear more Money Making Conversation interviews, please go to MoneyMakingConversation.com. I'm Rashawn McDonald. I'm your host.